This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I'll tell you what's bothered me for a long time, uh, really, at least for the last 20 years. But um, I'm all of a sudden more bothered by it. What's bothered me for a long time is the erosion of our privacy rights, Uh, the erosion of the rights available to us under the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution. And what bothers me is that law enforcement agencies on both a local level and a national level, they view the Fourth Amendment as little more than an obstacle to work around so that they can spy on you. So we've known for a long time that you're being listened to, you're being watched. And Big Brother itself is nothing new. It's gone from an Orwellian dystopian concept to something that we contend with every day. But I'll tell you the truth. You know what really grinds my gears? What really sticks in my craw these days is that nobody seems to care. We have now normalized government watching you, getting your private data, getting your private records, getting your private videos without a warrant. And there's no national outrage. I can't help but think that if the government on either a local level or a national level was doing the sorts of things it's doing now 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago, there would be popular outcry. These days, it's on page 40 of the newspaper, if you even still get the newspaper, after all the Kardashian news and all the Biden gaffes and all the Trump scandals and all the other stuff that makes news these days. Case in point, there is a plan by the San Francisco police, which I am betting... You have not heard about. And this is something that, unfortunately, I fear is going to become ubiquitous across America. A plan by the San Francisco police to monitor surveillance video captured by businesses and residents is stoking concerns that it will erode citizens' privacy and endanger the rights of protesters and members of marginalized groups. So there's this there's a proposed policy policy shift here. And this, more than anything, highlights the risk that technology installed for one purpose can easily be adapted for others. So this proposal would give the police broad power to use a wide range of cameras they don't own, including a large network of cameras operated by neighborhood business improvement districts, as well as those owned by individuals and stores. Understand what we're talking about here. A local business improvement district has cameras set up. You have a camera set up as a security camera for your own business. You have one set up as a ring camera in your own house. And the police are going, they want access to that video footage without even getting a warrant. The San Francisco Police Department, they've proposed the new policy. It's garnered support from the mayor in San Francisco, as well as the city's new district attorney, Brooke Jenkins. The existing San Francisco law requires all city agencies to ask for approval from the supervisors before they can acquire or use any new surveillance technology, except in life-threatening situations. 
The proposal's been heard by a committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors with amendments proposed that would add some limits, including when police can view the live feeds, how the data is stored and shared, and what consent is required from camera owners. See, the police leaders are arguing that the cameras will serve as additional eyes and ears at a time when San Francisco faces a perceived rise in crime, as well as complaints that the police are not enforcing laws. The state of crime in San Francisco is very contested. Some people cite what seems to be a rise in shoplifting and other offenses, but total crime is actually down since the pandemic, although homicides are up, which is a pretty big deal. Representatives of the San Francisco Police Department, they are not commenting on this when reporters are asked. So civil rights advocates are sounding the alarm. An attorney for the Electronic Frontier Foundation said, it is really important to us there are meaningful standards and restricting limitations. We don't believe that generally private cameras should be in the hands of law enforcement. Of course. Of course. And this has been borne out in a lot of surveys. Six in ten San Francisco voters oppose this proposal by the police. The thing that's so dangerous about this, one of the many, is how thin on details the San Francisco Police Department is being with this proposal, including which cameras it will and won't access, as well as the process it will use to gain consent and access the data. Critics want to see all that spelled out clearly. I'm worried that any expansion of any police department's surveillance capability is going to just allow them to target people who they don't like. And that could vary in city after city, municipality after municipality. Now, this comes the same day as this headline in uh, Politico. It was in a bunch of other papers, too. This is another headline I'm guessing you missed. Homeland Security records show shocking use of phone data. The Civil Liberties Group, the ACLU, has released documents showing new details about how agencies purchased information on people's movements throughout North America. So the um, the data that's on your phone, harvested from apps on hundreds of millions of phones, allowed the Department of Homeland Security to obtain data on more than 336,000 location data points across North America. These documents indicate that the, these data points may reference only a small portion of the information that the Customs and Border Patrol has obtained. These data points came from all over the continent, major cities like L.A., New York, Chicago, Denver, Toronto. And this location data continued into the Biden administration. So this is the one thing, you know, that um, it doesn't seem that there's partisanship here. Both Democratic and Republican administrations have no problem buying your data or getting your data somehow, even if it means doing so without a warrant. In just three days in 2018, the documents show that the Customs and Border Patrol collected data from more than 113,000 locations from phones in the southwestern United States. That's equivalent to more than 26 data points per minute without obtaining a warrant. Now, again, there's nobody that is more concerned about rising crime rates and rising homicide rates in cities than me. There's nobody that's more concerned about illegal immigration than me. That being said, once the government, whether it's a local government like the San Francisco Police Department or a national government agency like the Department of Homeland Security, 
is able to gain access to your private data by uh, making a deal with whatever private company you purchase your phone from or whatever private company services your video surveillance camera, we are in for a world of hurt. We've heard from Bill Binney, who helped design programs like this for the NSA years ago, that it's not at all unusual for them to take information that they uh, glom illegally and then use whatever incriminating information they get about you to then work backwards and allow one of these agencies to get a warrant into your bad behavior or into your purported bad behavior. I find this so alarming and so dangerous and a violation of not just the spirit, but the letter of what the Fourth Amendment says. Can you imagine if we said at the time of the American Revolution, well, yeah, we're going to go through all this trouble to fight a revolution, but then the government and the police department are going to be gaining access to your private records. They didn't have phones back then. They didn't have video cameras back then without even getting a warrant. I mean, please, this is incredibly dangerous. This is incredibly frightening. And the thing that's most frightening about it is there's only a handful of us that seem to care about it. Where is the outrage? Why are there not rallies being organized right now as we speak on this front? Why are people not shouting from the rooftops? Why are people not screaming on Twitter? Why have we so normalized big government and little government spying on us without a warrant? Why does no one care? And if you're going to call me and tell me, if you want to call me, you can, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. If you're going to call me and say, I have nothing to worry about because I don't do anything wrong, I don't want to hear it. I do not want to hear it. Because uh, the fact that you would say that is a complete abdication, not only of your privacy rights, but of your dignity as a person. You have a right not to have your private data from your phone or your video surveillance camera given to the police without your permission. And it used to be that that was a linchpin of the American system. These days, I'm the, I'm the aberration for questioning it. Uh, I find this very alarming, and I'm glad there are groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the ACLU out there decrying this sort of conduct. You're welcome to comment as you see fit. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's in store for today. Um, Edward Belbruno is going to be here in about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. He's an artist, mathematician, and scientist, and uh, our conversation was just getting good last week, and we ran out of time, so we've invited him back. Gerald Salente, he is a trends forecaster. He is doing a big rally for peace in Kingston, New York, on uh, Saturday. He'll tell us about that. We'll do the AC and Casino Report uh, with uh, Chuck Darrow in our third hour, and then uh, our colleague Brian Kilmeade is going to join us in our fourth hour to uh, go through some of the news of the day. But... Now, let me hear from you. 800-848-9222. Alex is in Brooklyn. Hello, Alex. 
Hey, thanks for taking the call. And by the way, if you could send regards to Brian Kilmeade, he's just fantastic, just like you are. But uh, in terms of privacy, this game has been the game was lost a long time ago, and that's why I think there's there isn't that much outrage about the government being able to use private cameras, because you know China, I think China has access to all our phones. People could hack into private cameras. But I agree with you that the government should not make it official that they could just use private cameras for security and look at it. But I think that because it's so difficult after a crime, you know, took place and the, when the cops want a, a serious crime, let's say a kidnapping, the cops want to, you know, collect the footage, they have to go through such a difficult and long process and so much time is lost and it's really important time to get the warrants, to be able to force someone to give them access to their private cameras. So I think we have to make it easier for the cops in, in, in an instance of where a crime has been committed already, that they should be able to force someone to give them access to the private camera without having to go through a whole long process. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for the call, Alex, and thanks for your nice words about the show. I will give your regards to Brian. It almost reminds me, I, I, I don't remember which Batman movie it was. I think it was The Dark Knight. Uh, I think it was The Dark Knight, but it might have been The Third. It was one of those Christopher Nolan movies with uh, that guy Christian Bale as Batman. I think it was The Dark Knight, where they essentially turn all of the cameras in Gotham City into a giant way for the government to spy on its citizens. That's no longer science fiction. That's where we are. And I don't think people know about this. And unfortunately, I get the sense that they're not really outraged about it. And I was glad to hear the comments of Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, who said, and he's exactly right about this as far as I'm concerned, despite claims by data brokers, no one who downloads an app thinks they are giving permission to waive their Fourth Amendment rights and let the government follow their every move. He's exactly right. You know, I got the um, I got an email when we did this segment on the ring cameras last Friday from a retired judge, and I invited him on the show next week, and I think he's going to come. But uh, this judge said to me, well, you got to check your user agreement. Uh, come on. Is anybody reading these user agreements? They make them so long and filled with legalese. And what's going to happen if you you click you don't click accept on one of these apps or one of these user agreements for your Ring camera? What, what are you going to send it back? Of course not. It's just so silly. They make there's no freedom of contract. You don't really get to negotiate an agreement. You they, you have to take the agreement as it is. And that that agreement, if it has some fine print in there, some mouse print that you didn't even bother to read that allows this private company to sell your data to a government agency or someone else, well, too bad for you. The location data industry is an estimated $12 billion market made up of hundreds of apps that collect location data, data brokers who trade that information among each other, and buyers who look to use that data for purposes such as advertising and law enforcement. So because the U.S. has no federal privacy laws to rein in this private industry, location data sales have gone unchecked for the past decade and allowed data brokers to sell millions of people's whereabouts to whoever's buying. Wouldn't you like to know who's buying your data? Location data has been sold in the past to help the military identify Muslim populations 
and it was available on Planned Parenthood visitors. A blog also used location data to out a gay priest in 2021. In 2020, excuse me, in 2020, the Wall Street Journal revealed that federal agencies, including the Department of Homeland Security, were using commercial location data for immigration enforcement. Uh, Now, look, again, I want to stress, I'm all for broader immigration enforcement, but not at the expense of getting my data or yours without my permission, without a warrant, or without your permission. 800-848-9222. Lou is on Long Island. Hello, Lou. Yes, good evening, uh, Frank. Um, I want to change my topic. I have a Google uh, app, I guess, on my Android phone, and it used to, uh, once a month, um, tell me my locations. It would, you know, show up on maps. It showed where I was at a supermarket, and it showed where I was at my aunt's house. Now, to me, that was kind of spooky. That well, I mean, yeah, I think you can turn off that function, but what, I did. I did once I found the uh, the you know, the menu to turn it off. I most certainly did. Well, but I, I to think... be known that you're tracking. You're being tracked wherever you go by your phone because it's in your pocket or your backpack, wherever. Well, yeah, I agree with you, Lou. But what's to me more uh, more offensive is for them to sell that data wherever you've been to a private company so they can make money marketing to you or to sell it to the Department of Homeland Security so they, they can help nail you for a crime. Al is in Yonkers. Yeah, hi, Frank. Uh, thanks for taking my call. You know, from what I heard you explain about everything – you know, I agree with you. I concur that, you know, where is the outcry? I just think today with technology getting so advanced, uh, things are just out of control with in regards to our, our privacy rights. Uh, I don't know if it's even possible uh, on a federal level uh, if there would be any kind of, uh, you know, checks and balances with the uh, judicial intervention. I don't know if you could have got away with this years ago uh, with the Warren court. Uh, But then again, times have changed so much, and uh, the world is so different. And maybe if there was more uh, legislative intervention, uh, that's all I, you know. But I just wanted to say that I do agree with you that, uh, you know, where is the outcry? Uh, It's surprising that it's not uh, more people out there, you know, looking into this. Well, thank you, Al. I appreciate that. And I'll tell you, what's so offensive about what they're doing in San Francisco is the only reason they were able to get those cameras up in those business improvement districts to begin with is that privacy, is that residents in those communities were promised that these cameras installed by the business improvement districts would not be monitored by the police. And it's like and it's, um, you know, I'm reminded of that uh, that scene in uh, Animal House. Well, you effed up. You trusted us. Well, why would you ever trust anybody's word? And this at this point going forward, you shouldn't. All of you that are endlessly skeptical about the motives of both the private sector and the public sector. Once again, it seems you've been borne out. You've been proven right. The desire of private companies to make money from your data without your knowledge apparently trumps everything. The the desire of the government to collect information about your whereabouts and everything you're seeing and doing without your permission, without your knowledge, and without a warrant, that trumps everything, including the Bill of Rights. Mario is in Hell's Kitchen. 
very quickly. Uh, I don't know the exact wording. I'm sure you do. Benjamin Franklin said it best about security and having all these things to be safe. And in the end, you're going to lose both. That was Benjamin Franklin. So this is like the federal government with a different kind of eminent domain in the private sector that they could do these things and people that are doing things like maybe working off the books, for example, don't really want to rock the boat. So they just let it slide and say, well, let them do that. Maybe they won't catch me. And that's where we are today. People are in fear. They're in fear of the government. You're right, Mario. You're right, Mario. And as Jefferson used to say, it'd be a lot healthier if the government were afraid of its citizenry rather than the other way around. But the Franklin quote, and I, I think you're right, I think it's very apt here. The Franklin quote that I think you're looking for is, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. And uh, that certainly strikes me as apropos here. All right. We're going to talk about art, science, and space with Edward Belbruno. Uh, We were just getting going last week when we were uh, covering a whole lot of ground with respect to science and uh, and art and uh, and, uh, a UFO sighting, quite frankly, that uh, we ran out of time. I had to have him back, and now he, he is coming back, so I'm thrilled about that. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Those of you that are on hold, we'll get to you a bit later. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. summer in terms of oppressive heat. Uh, this is a hit classic song from the 80s uh, by Bananarama. You ever want to know what kind of music we're spending on the program? You uh, can just join our Facebook group at uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Just search that on Facebook and you can participate in the forum. Not only know the bumper music that we're playing, but uh, be part of all the discussions that we're having. And uh, you would see a message from Juliana Reck who asked if I could send her a Cheerio because she's listening in the afternoon in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, Well, cheers, mate. Juliana Reck, thank you for listening all the way in Australia. I didn't even need to know uh, that you were in Australia because your phone company was kind enough to sell me all of your data on your location, and I know where you are at all times. Uh, Speaking of where we were a week ago, I can't tell you the response that I got from my discussion with Edward Bell Bruno. This is really a man of many talents. Artist, mathematician, scientist, 
a guy that worked for NASA, a guy whose artwork has gotten a lot of critical acclaim. And uh, just as our conversation was uh, was heating up, we, we ran out of time, but he's been kind enough to rejoin us. Ed, thanks so much. It's great to talk with you again. Hey, thank you. It's it's a real thrill to be back on the other side of midnight. Well, Ed, yesterday we spoke a little bit about the uh, anniversary of uh, of the moon landing. As somebody that spent a long time working for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and for NASA, and as somebody that uh, has spent a lot of time mapping out new and exciting routes uh, to the moon, what sort of a game changer was that for 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 the American space program and for space exploration in general? You mean the uh, the, the nineteen sixty trajectories that I found? Well, no, Apollo eleven in general. Ah, Apollo, yeah, Apollo. Um, you mean the landing on the moon? Yes. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, you know, prior to that, uh, you know, the idea that you could send anything to the moon and land people was considered to be science fiction, and um, you know, they they proved otherwise. Uh, an incredibly uh, complicated thing to do. I mean, the the largest rocket uh, ever ever built in history. Uh, it was designed by Werner von Braun, uh, who actually designed the V-2 rocket back in uh, in 1930s. And what people don't, uh, you know, we're talking about the Apollo, but, you know, the V-2 rocket was the first object ever in space, period. I mean, we talk, we, we talk about Sputnik as being the first orbiting thing, but the V-2 was the first object to ever go into space, and that was like 1940, I believe. But but after World War II, von Braun designed the Saturn V for the United States, and uh, um, was done in an incredibly fast amount of time. I mean, Kennedy—I forget the exact date of Kennedy's speech—was like 62, 63. I, I don't know the exact date, but in a very short, in only a few years, they designed this gigantic uh, rocket. And um, uh, you know, the, the idea of building a rocket, first of all, that size was considered impo- almost impossible, but they did it, and it had to ha- it had to have the ability to to loft not just the capsule with the three astronauts in it, but the entire uh, landing craft that went down to the moon and came back again when they got to the moon. And uh, that's a huge payload to bring up, plus all the fuel and everything else. Um, now, the thing is that they, they, they launched that a number of times. Everyone was successful, and uh, it, it never failed. Um, so it was a great success. It was a huge, a huge game changer. And your the the route that you designed to the moon, which has been used multiple times now, apparently, how much time does that save rather than going the kind of the conventional route to the moon? Okay, so what happens is the the one that I found, which was a nineteen ninety one, uh, that was used to rescue the Japanese spacecraft Titan, a little lunar robotic probe about the size of a trash can. But it was the first object ever to get to the moon on this trajectory, and I was very lucky with my colleague James Miller to re- to rescue this literally. But um, uh, basically, it takes it takes a lot longer to get there. It takes three months to get there instead of three days, and you ha- you basically fly by the moon. You you go out of you you go out about a million about a million miles beyond the moon. Then you arc around and fall back to the moon again. And when you fall back, you can actually go in orbit around the moon with absolutely no fuel. So it takes three days, three months instead of three days. However, the advantage is you can go into orbit around the moon with no fuel, and and the idea you can go with no fuel just saves a tremendous amount of money because uh, anything you carry to the moon is about a million dollars a pound. Wow! Uh, no, I know. I would think it would save a great deal of money. 
The last time you were here, we spoke a little bit about your artwork, and uh, I've spent a lot of time over the last week perusing some of the artwork that's available on your website, and uh, people yeah. can uh, can check it out for themselves at uh, edbelbruno.com. It's uh, Belbruno with uh, with one L. Your your artwork has, and I, I, what was interesting to me about our previous conversation is you said that you were an artist first prior to being a scientist, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I did my first painting when I was like about seven years old. And in fact, it was an oil painting. No one ever showed me how to do it. I just did it automatically. And, and I think I said last time that painting I did, I still have it. And it came out so good that it was actually used in a group show I had in New York City at a gallery a few years ago for an entire entire group of artists. And they, they, the gallery wanted to use that to show off the whole show. So it came out really good. And it was a space scene, you know, and then I did another one a, a couple of years later of a of Saturn. It, it came out really good, and it's, I've used that in art shows as well. Uh, so um, I've always I've always painted, and I never envisioned myself ever going into mathematics or, or science, and I ended up doing that, which was, was kind of amazing to me, but uh, that's where I am now. Now, you actually have an art show coming up in October, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have uh, art shows uh, frequently. I've had three this year already. I have one in New York City um, at, at a gallery called Agora. It's down in Chelsea, and it's going to be opening on um, October 6th. Well, that's, that's pretty neat. If people want to go to that, what's the, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, you just go to the Agora Gallery. It's, it's agora.com, I believe, or you, you just Google Agora, and uh, you know, at, at around that time, they'll have the, you know, the, the, the information about it. But it's right down there, I think, on, on 20, uh, what, what is it? Uh, around 23rd uh, Street? Yeah, about 23rd, I think 25th, actually, 25th and 10th around there. But it's called Agora. It's easy to find. Now, you had just begun to tell us this story of your encounter with, in the Wyoming desert, where you were traveling with a friend and you encountered a a UAP. Uh, Briefly, tell us again what happened back in, uh, you know, back in, I guess it was around 1991. It was in 1991. That's right. So um, what it happened, I'll, I'll just I'll just briefly describe it again. Is that okay? Please, yes. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to um, you know repeat myself, but I guess there could be some list other sure. listeners. Sure, absolutely. Get new listeners all the time. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, when I was working at JPL back then, um, I had designed this route to the moon, and uh, the, the whole design of this was kind of strange to begin with because a lot of politics involved, and it was one of these things where. I designed. I, I was the. I was the first. I'm not bragging, but I was the first to apply chaos theory to space travel. And uh, this. And this. This. And my, my my theory was not appreciated at the time. I'll just leave it like that. So I found myself leaving JPL. Um, and um, right around when that was happening, um, I had the opportunity to literally uh, apply my work to. Um, an Aaron Japanese lunar probe but back in 1991 Japan wanted to be the third country in history to orbit something to the moon it was back in 1990 actually and it was called HITEN H I T E N and it had a little spacecraft on it called Hogoromo and that pair went to the went over to the earth um at the same time and and this was in 90 uh, January 90 and uh, um and and uh no actually it was 91 I'm sorry it was it was no, it was 1990. Um, excuse me, everyone. I'm just – it's late at night. <laughs> I hear you. Believe me. Um, yeah. And and, um, and so um, they 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 launched up as a pair, and they're orbiting the Earth. And 
And the idea was the small one, Hogoromo, broke off from the – departed from the other one, which which was called Haiten, about the size of a desk. Hogoromo is about the size of a grapefruit. And it, it went off to the moon on the standard route that we were talking about earlier. It takes three days to get there, but it didn't work right. And uh, Japan really wanted to uh, you know, save themselves and get something to be successful about that mission. So uh, when I was leaving in, in basically in early 1990 and wanting to get out of there because my, my theory was not you know, being widely accepted, to put it mildly, um, right around that time there was a knock on my door and uh, someone walked in who was asked by Japan to, to look into my work. And and this this guy named James Miller uh, said, you know, I heard about your work. It's pretty crazy, but uh, I'll apply. You know, we'll try anything, right? But the moment he said that, I had this epiphany moment where suddenly I saw what to do. I've I've never even thought about a problem like this. And I said, try this. He goes, that'll never work. And he came back the next day and said, geez, you know, it really works. So it was a brand new route to the moon where you don't go to the moon directly. You actually fly by it, and uh, you you. You go way out, about a million miles, four times the Earth-Moon distance, and you come back and you go in orbit around the moon. So we, this was faxed over to Japan. They loved it. They, a year later, they actually did it. In, in, um, in April of 1991, they actually took um, Hyten out of Earth orbit. And, um, and, and this, 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 this route that I designed basically used no fuel at all. And um, it was thought to be impossible to get to the moon with no fuel, but this time they, they, they tried it out, and it worked. So um, it's on its way to the moon, and and this is like now in 1990, and and I, I was I went to under I underwent so much politics to show this was valid, uh, that I really wanted to leave L.A. So me and my partner um, left, um, you know, a friend of mine uh, left uh, L.A. in my car. We we put my paintings in the car and drove. I drove out to uh, Minnesota. On the way out there, we went via uh, Wyoming. Um, so we we drove up up to Casper, Wyoming, and then uh, I wanted to go north, tour a bunch of hotels where I um, to, to just to get you know just to, to rest and whatever. And uh, she wanted to take a small little road um, off to the off to the east, um, which I didn't want to do. And this is this is north of Casper, and, and uh, it, it went to Thunder Basin National Grasslands, which which was the last place I wanted to ever go to. Um, so. Anyway, we're there, and uh, I just want to remind everyone that as we're driving there, in the meantime, the the, the Japanese spacecraft's on the way to the moon, and I had no idea if it was even going to go, it was going to even work or anything. So um, I had that out of my mind, and I'm with her, and we're driving on this side road, which is going to Thunder Basin National Grasslands. And it was about you know, nine o'clock at night, and uh, it was an incredibly balmy night, and it was fog. It was a very strange night. And, and not a single car passed us in either direction. And I was driving for a good solid two hours. And about 11 o'clock, uh, there's a sign saying, right, Wyoming. We're, we're entering that area where the grasslands were, and it's nothing but sagebrush. And there was no moon that night. It was just a very strange night. So in uh, any event, the, the, the Thunder Basin goes down into a basin. And um, it's, it's just, it, goes, it just gently goes down. So um, you can sort of see the road go down into this basin. So I, I'm noticing is that there's a red light <clears throat> on the road uh, way off in the distance and uh, maybe about five miles in front of us. And uh, <clears throat> my, uh, my, my instinct was, well, what, what, what is a red light doing out here at 11 o'clock at night in the middle of nowhere? I mean, and, you know, far off in the distance, but it was on the road, it looked like. And um, 
I, I just said, you know, it's got to be a construction site, something like that. Um, I had to rationalize it was something. And my, my, my friend who was in the car didn't know what to make of it, so she didn't say anything. Um, <clears throat> as we descended down, um, I noticed the light was incredibly bright, and it was intensely red. And uh, the, the road uh, s- sort of leveled off as we got into it. And it was straight ahead at this point. And it was about maybe about a quarter mile in front. And um, you have to understand, there's no star. I mean, there's stars, but there's no moon. Off to the left of the mountains, and then to the right is just grassland. So um, <clears throat> this light is in front of my car, and uh, I'm driving a Jeep, a Jeep Wrangler. And uh, I'm driving, and then it's getting brighter and brighter. And I'm saying, wait a minute, this can't be a construction site. I mean, this is like really a bright thing. And then I notice that I'm maybe a few hundred feet in front of this thing. And I see there's not a light. It's, it's actually a boundary of a square. It was maybe 30 feet by 30 feet in a square. And I never saw, of course, anything like that. It was the strangest thing I ever saw. It was a, and and, I, and it, so I pulled forward slowly at this point, And I got maybe 100 feet in front of it. And I saw that it was a giant boundary of a square. But it was not on the road. It was sort of off of the road. And it was on the back of something else, which was much bigger. It was on a black object that was also squarish, and it was probably like maybe 60 feet by 60 feet. It was it was like a side of a building, um, and I'm just sitting there staring at this thing with my friend and saying, what the heck is that? I mean, nothing in my life ever remotely looked anything like that. Um, as we're sitting there, after about 10 minutes, it, it rose up off of the ground. It was silent. And then it turned sideways. It, so it, it turned sideways, and what we were looking at was the back of an object that was about 120 feet long, and it was a giant rectangle. Um, it was glowing blue in the middle, and um, I, I just my jaw dropped. I mean, it didn't make any noise, and uh, my friend didn't say anything either because it, it wasn't it wasn't doing anything dangerous. It mm. was just it was beautiful, as a matter of fact. But I never saw, of course, anything like that. And if anybody's ever seen a rectangle, let me know. Um, so it, I, I didn't want to get out. And so my friend says, why don't you get out and go under it? And I said, you get out and go under. I'm not <laughs> going to get near that thing. So, um, I sat there and then it slowly went off and it went very, very slowly off the side of the road. And, and it was up in the air, like a hundred feet up and it went north to where the mountains were. But before it moved, it, it it went up and down in front of us like it was doing a dance or something. It was like a show. It was like it was almost like a greeting or something, and then it just gently went off. And uh, um, I got back. I got out of my car when the thing was far enough off in the distance, and I said to myself, "You couldn't write a screenplay like this. I mean, this is like something out of the movies. What the heck was that?" So I, I got back in the car and uh, grabbed the steering wheel. And I was just absolutely lost in thought because I'm a scientist and right. I never saw anything like that. So I drove and um, I just lost track of where I was. And my friend is shaking me and she's saying, um, they're going to kill us. And she's screaming at the top of her lungs. And I'm like, I was so lost in thought. I wasn't noticing that there's this incredibly bright pulsating white light on the left of the road. This is about 10 minutes after we left this other thing, which was pretty innocuous. It was beautiful, but it wasn't threatening at all. This was threatening. So I started to slow down, and uh, um, to the left of the road, 
there were a bunch of looked like people standing around and the ground was pulsating white light and I started to stop and my friend was screaming. She just she said they're gonna kill us, we have to get out of here. And she goes, I'm gonna jump out if you if you if you stop this car. So I'm saying to myself, there's gonna be a woman running through mm-hmm. the grasslands where I'm sitting here, God knows who those people are on the left, whatever they were. And uh, so I just slowly went forward and we drove north to uh, Gillette, Wyoming, which, which went north from right. Right was right around the corner. Um, it was the most incredible thing I ever, I ever saw. And so I get to, we got to the hotel. This is, this is, I only realized this a few months later. Um, I'm, I'm saying to her as we drive into this town, Gillette, I'm saying it's so late. We're never going to get a hotel. It's impossible. We're never going to get one because it's like four in the morning, right? Meanwhile, we did find a hotel. There was one open. And um, I, we get the hotel, and it occurred to me that when we ran into that thing back uh, back on the road, it, it was like around 11 o'clock at night, and Gillette was only 40 miles away on a good-sized road. So it did not take us four hours or five hours to drive there. So it was that typical missing time people talk about. Right. So I don't know why that happened. It just did. Um, now, uh, th- there's a lot more I could say about this, but I'm, I, I can't. But um, what happened was – we ended up uh, driving back to where, you know, back to um, to St. Paul, Minnesota, where I ended up settling for a while. And um, when I got there, Carl Sagan, a uh, very famous scientist, you know, uh, he he asked me to write up uh, my story of uh, how I found this trajectory to rescue the, the Japanese spacecraft. And this is like three months later. And um, I'm, I'm writing up the story for the Planetary Report, which is published by the Planetary Society. And uh, I get to the very last line of the end of it, and I said, in October 2nd, 1991, the Japanese spacecraft arrived at the moon on that new trajectory that, that, that I found, which was very exciting for me, right? And I said, it got there, and that was the date, you know, and I put it down. And then I said, wait a minute, October 2nd? That was that was exactly when I saw that thing on the road. It was October second, about that time. If you translate the times, it all corresponded. So uh, when when I realized that, it was one of those moments in my life where I was absolutely just, you know, it was like, wow. what is going on, right? That that is wild. Now, initially, you told your story uh, anonymously, if I'm if I understand correctly, and then ultimately you chose to come out and you know identify your yourself with that story. Why did you choose initially not to come forward under your real name, and then why did you change your mind? Um, well, that's that's a that's a valid point. Uh, so um, you know, there's a stigma with this kind of thing, and. Uh, um, so uh, basically, like anybody else, I was a bit frightened to say anything. Um, but on the other hand, I am a scientist. Uh, I, I study science. I'm a mathematician. I'm about as hardcore a scientist as you can get. I mean, a lot of people might do social sciences or whatever, but right. I do physics, mathematics. So for me, I saw what I saw, and I didn't want to, like, not talk about it. So I did talk about it uh, to this one organization. And uh, um, but I did didn't want my voice disguised because I didn't want to be able to be talking about this. Um, however, um, what happened was um, um, I got a little bit more brave as time went on, and and second, um, as you as everybody knows, listening, 
um, there's been more and more sightings going on over the years of of objects, which is now being reported by the military and where there's congressional meetings going on. In fact, one of my colleagues at Princeton University, uh, David Spurgle, is currently leading the NASA effort to look into this kind of thing. So it's it's now more or less out in the open. Uh, but but before this happened now, um, a few years ago, it was heading in that direction very slowly. And I saw that and I and the stigma was sort of going down. So I felt more comfortable to talk about it. Uh, I've heard you say elsewhere that you thought that maybe after this experience that it was possible that humans were not in prime control of this planet. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, um, uh, so (laughs) it's a very good point. Um, The... uh, um, the, the, I, th- I think so. There's a lot of uh, fear associated to anything as, about UAPs. A lot of people who are very brave or curious or, or don't have no axe to grind, they have no problem with it. So, yeah, I mean, it's a big universe. There's, there's trillions of stars. And, you know, perhaps something could have found its way here at some point in the past. I mean, I, I, I don't think the planets like Earth with water are, are, are very common, I think they're incredibly rare. And 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 um, if there is life out there, they probably want to find these kinds of planets. So the idea that something can make its way here is is not particularly surprising. Um, so uh, um, from my experience, uh, since I no one has come forward to tell me about what an, it, I, I, I've asked people, by the way, have you, has anybody ever seen a rectangle like that? No one's ever come forward to say yes. And 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 from the coincidence of the timing and all that, it seemed pretty clear to me that something was going on that was not um, anything I understood. So so therefore, there must be a, some kind of um, intelligence here that's not human based. It you know just seems to be the case um, because otherwise uh, I would be able to explain that, which I can't. And um, unless can someone can tell me that there's a, some secret programs making things like that, that's another story, but I don't think so. Uh, so um, it, it leads me to believe that it's highly possible, although you can't guarantee it, but possible uh, based on my experience and based on what's going on with the UAP study now, that there, there is there's, um, perhaps some kind of uh, uh, intelligence here that is not human-based. Um, and I think that's a reasonable suggestion. Mm. It's not, not been proven, but this is this is, I think, why we have a UAP study. Why the Congress is interested. Why NASA is now taking a very active interest in this is because these UAPs they've seen uh, over aircraft carriers or surveilling our nuclear sites and things of this nature has gotten the attention of the United States government, and they want to find out well what are these things, right? So uh, what I saw was clearly weird and very unusual, and it, so it leads me to believe that. Uh, um, it's possible that there could be some form of advanced intelligence here, um, which doesn't particularly surprise mm. me because, uh, after all, it's a big universe. Yeah, that's for sure. Ed, we're going to have to end it there. Hopefully, uh, maybe we can uh, we could chat again in, before your New York City art show in October. I'd like to come down and try and see it, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners would as well. If people want to see more of your art, they can go to Ed Belbruno. Uh, dot com. Ed, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. 
Well, thank you. I, I hope I didn't go over for you. Uh, well, no, perfect. You're perfect, and I'll look forward to chatting again soon. It was a real thrill, and you have a great show. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. You're very kind. Uh, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, that's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, coming up next hour, we're going to talk with uh, Gerald Salente, a fan favorite if ever there was one. And uh, he is going to give us his take on some trends that he foresees economically, politically, geopolitically. And we'll uh, ask him about this rally that he's hosting on Saturday in uh, Kingston, New York. So uh, I am now, as I announced yesterday, speaking of science and science fiction, all caught up on the television series The Orville. Last night before I came to work, my wife and I watched the second episode of the most recent season of, um, well, it's like a season and a half. They bifurcated the season into two different things of Better Call Saul. So Better Call Saul, if you're not familiar with it, is a prequel to one of the greatest dramas of all time, Breaking Bad. And it's great. Bob Odenkirk plays this uh, attorney, Saul Goodman, who plays by his own rules. And it was um, it was very interesting. I don't want to give anything away if you haven't seen it, because it's only it's only only came out a couple of days ago. But this um, now we're starting to see the characters because the events of Better Call Saul take place in right before Breaking Bad. We're starting to see the characters on Better Call Saul, now that this series is winding down, look a lot like they do in uh, in Breaking Bad. And I'll tell you, what, what they do on this show, which I find very impressive, is they really are able to effectively balance comedy and drama in a manner that I think very few other shows can pull off effectively. The Sopranos could do it. The Sopranos, you'd be laughing one moment on the edges of your seat the next, and then in tears the next. I find Better Call Saul able to do that pretty effectively as well. And it's interesting to me. One of the things that you notice in the series Better Call Saul, and the other thing I like about this series, if you haven't seen it, is the music. The music that they use... I don't know who does the music for this show, uh, but it so perfectly captures the mood of each scene that it's just it's the score and the scoring is just magical. It's absolutely magical. It's really effective. But the thing that I take note of on watching this show is that but for a few decisions going one way or another you could end up as a very different person than the one you are. And it's very easy to see how, all right, you take a shortcut here, you tell one little lie there, you cheat a little bit here, and you don't do the right thing there, and all of a sudden, you're a villain. And But for the grace of God, go I. 
At least that's what I think watching this show. Uh, but it's really, I'm, I'm going to miss this show when it's over, but I think it's leaving at just the right time. All right, until next hour, in the words of Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Decades ago, newly married women overwhelmingly would adopt their husband's last name. This was a social custom. This was a way of securing certain legal, economic, and familial protections. In some states, those safeguards included being able to retain your driver's license or voter registration, pick up your children from school, have a credit card. And culturally, adopting the husband's name was connected to a lot of paternalistic notions of ownership that women once belonged to their father, then their husband. And despite a growing feminism movement and increased gender equality in almost every area of life, the overwhelming commonness of this practice remains. At least in the United States, about 20 to 30 percent of women retain their name, meaning the vast majority of the rest take their spouse's name when they marry. That includes Jennifer Lopez. She confirmed her marriage to Ben Affleck with the signature Mrs. Jennifer Lynn Affleck. According to Deborah Carr, who's a professor of sociology at Boston University, Women may take their husband's name legally, but professionally, I would bet she will continue to perform under the name of J-Lo. Sometimes people take their husband's name legally, but professionally, they may use their maiden name. It wasn't until legal changes and a booming feminist movement in the 1970s that there was a big push to keep one's last name. That tendency dipped during the 80s, which was a more conservative era, and it has fluctuated since the 90s. The decision to retain or forego one's name can still be influenced by all sorts of factors, economic factors, social factors, religious factors, romantic factors, familial factors, whatever, especially when children are involved. Also, it's um, quite a choice when you get divorced also. Let's say you were using your husband's last name. Do you keep that name? My experience on the latter is that generally – in my experience, and I, I have no, this is nothing but anecdotal evidence to back this up. Women who have children, they want to keep the same name as their children. So they will keep their name even if they get divorced. Whereas if they don't, uh, then they're a little bit less likely to keep that same last name from the person that they just divorced. In my mother's case, for instance, my mother and father are divorced. Uh, but she still uses the name Stephanie Morano because that was her son's name. She wanted the same name as her son. Simple as that. 
Um, in terms of, um, I am curious what your observations of this practice are, of people taking this name as their of the of their husband once they get married, and or reverting back to their maiden name when they get divorced. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. My sister, Claudia Morano, she absolutely loves her name. Absolutely loves it. She says, and she's not engaged or anything, but she says when she gets married one day, no way. No way is she giving up that last name, Morano. She is keeping that name. And, you know, on the one hand, I think uh, as a Morano, it gives me a lot of pride that she's so proud of her last name that she wants to keep it. My wife... When we got married and her um, marriage certificate, she signed it, and they asked her the question at the the city clerk's office, do you want to take your husband's last name? Ultimately, she chose legally not to. She still uses her, her maiden name, and it was mostly because of her work as a journalist. She didn't want to change her byline at, at, at all. But in our case, she uses her maiden name legally, but in terms of personal um, interactions, she uses her married name, Morano. So she uses uh, Rachel. She'll introduce herself as Rachel Morano. She'll make uh, reservations as Rachel Morano. But she still has her driver's license, her credit cards, her bank statements, and her, um, you know, her passport. That's all under her maiden name. So I am curious if you see this trend going in one way or another in the ensuing years, 800-848-9222. So for some people, adopting a spouse's name is a public statement to the world that you are, in fact, a couple. Um, There is a lot of social pressure to do that. But uh, inertia or tradition are other reasons. Some things just have always been done, and so people don't question them. They don't counter them. I'm curious if you're a woman who's gotten married, what decision did you make? Keep your maiden name, use your married name, and why? 800-848-9222. Some people might be keen to get rid of their family name because of a desire to somehow separate themselves from their biological um, you know, biological parents. You know, I have a friend, a woman, she was arrested, and her arrest got a lot of attention. And I'm not going to tell you her name because she's a, a close friend. I don't want to embarrass her. And she got married. She couldn't surrender her maiden name fast enough because her thinking was that once people start Googling her name now, that all of the articles about her arrest would never come up. So there's all sorts of reasons that people may get rid of their names or may keep their names. Speaking of trends, we're going to talk with Gerald Salente in about 10 minutes about uh, the trends that he sees on the horizon and where he sees things going with Russia and Ukraine in this rally that he's going to be hosting on uh, on what day? Saturday in Kingston, New York. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Let me begin with Susan in Paramus, New Jersey. Hello there, Susan. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Um, I have two examples. Mm-hmm. I've been married 40 years, so 40 years ago. To how many different I people? my maiden name because my dad had three girls. So I added on my husband's name. So I'm not even hyphenated. I'm just my last name, my husband's name. My daughter, who's been married five years, kept her maiden name. And the children, she has two children. So their last names are her name and her husband's name. I Oh, that's interesting. 
Uh, yeah, I've noticed that becoming more more and more common. Ron Kuby's daughter does that. Ron Kuby's daughter uses both her mother's name and her father's name. So I have noticed mm-hmm. uh, that becoming a little a little more common. That's interesting. Yeah. So just wanted to say that. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Uh, in Paramus, uh, my wife was in Paramus yesterday. We'll tell you about why in just a bit. Uh, some people try to make this a, a women's lib thing. Women who believe in gender equality yet take on their husband's name might think that the name change doesn't mean they're ceding away any of their authority as a woman. But uh, very rarely does a husband adopt a wife's surname. It's funny, Marlena Schiavo uh, and I were having this discussion off air the other day because uh, she doesn't really use her husband's last name, either personally or professionally. And in a 2018 study, and, and basically she said, she said, I said, you know, it would be nice if your wife took your last name. And she says, well, why don't you take your wife's name? And I, I really didn't have much of an answer. And apparently in a study of uh, 877 men just a few years ago, 3% of men, only 3% had changed their name once married. Of those men... Uh, 25 of them dropped their last name entirely and two hyphenated their name. But men who changed their name in any form were more likely to be less educated. Isn't that interesting? I would not have guessed that. But among the 20 to 30 percent of women who don't follow tradition, the most common practice is keeping their own last, their, their maiden name, their surname followed by a hyphenation, making a hybrid name, as Susan did, or even more rarely, coming up with a totally new shared name. That's weird. Does anybody know anybody that has done that, that has taken a uh, uh, their married name and their maiden name and essentially made it a portmanteau into a new last name? I've never met anyone that has done that. I'm curious if you have, 800-848-9222. So for some women, keeping their name is preserving their personal and familial identity that they've always had. That's how I think my sister views it. And uh, that could be tied to their parents. That could be tied to their ethnic heritage. Some people have established a professional identity. That is what I mentioned with my wife, especially those in very visible positions, writers, academics, celebrities. Bill Bratton's wife, who is a legal commentator, she's on TV all the time, she still uses her maiden name of Ricky Kleiman. And uh, if their name's key to their profession, that's something that they're not necessarily willing to give up. So I'm curious where you come down on this and where you think society's going on this. 800-848-9222. In addition to talking with Gerald Salente in about 10 minutes, we're going to uh, talk with Brian Kilmeade in our fourth hour. And in our uh, third hour, our AC and Casino report, we're going to talk with Chuck Darrow. He's certainly a fan favorite. I just got an email here from one of these people that uses a phone number as an email address, which is kind of annoying, let's face it. He writes, or she writes, hyphenated women are high maintenance. I don't necessarily agree uh, that that's true. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. I think, uh, you know, if in my wife's case, if she wants to keep her last name professionally and still use our name um, you know, in all private social correspondence, I think that uh, I think that that's just fine in my view. 
All right. Uh, you want to weigh in on Twitter, you can do so at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. You can also email me. I'm getting a ton of correspondence based on my discussion with uh, Ed Bell Bruno. And uh, I find him to be a pretty interesting guy. And I am going to try and go see his art show in uh, in October. Uh, if you want to email me, you can do so. Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. And on Instagram... I posted the uh, the photographs of us taking Carmine to Coney Island on Sunday. And the photos that I posted of Carmine, you could find me on Instagram, at Morano Vision. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. Those have gotten more likes than anything I have ever posted on Instagram. Ever. And even though it's just been a few days. So apparently the kid is pretty popular. In the world of Instagram. Uh, also, I'll give you uh, an update. A few of you have been asking about uh, our cat, Bathsheba. I'll give you an update on that a little bit later this hour as well. Meantime, uh, why don't we take a quick break? We'll talk with Gerald Salente in just a moment. He's got this big rally coming up on Saturday in uh, in Kingston, New York, which was, you may not know this, the very first capital of New York State. Whenever you pass Kingston on the thruway, that's the first thing it says, the first capital of New York State. Did you know that? Well, well, now you know. All right, Gerald Salente joins me straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Of all the guests that we've had on the show over the last two and a half years, I don't think there's one that has generated more reaction, positive by some, negative by others, curious by many, than Gerald Salente. Gerald Salente's track record when it comes to making predictions is unparalleled. He does it not by tapping into some mythical supernatural power. He does this by analyzing trends. And more often than not, the trends that he analyzes leads him to making the right predictions when it comes to cultural trends, when it comes to the economy, when it comes to politics. And now he has been very vocal and very active on an issue that's near and dear to my heart, which is as a lot of people are rushing and itching towards war in Ukraine and just uh, eager for World War IV, you have Gerald Salente and a couple of others saying, let's wait a second and see if this is really in the best interests of America and the world. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome back the founder of the Trends Research Institute, the publisher of the Trends Journal, and the founder of Occupy Peace, Gerald Salente. Gerald, it's great to talk with you again. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for the kind words. Now, they uh, happen to be true. I know you have this big rally coming up uh, in Kingston on Saturday, which we're going to talk about. But uh, before we get there, one of the trends that I think everybody has noticed of the, over the course of the last year and a half or so has been inflation. Everything just about costs a lot more than it used to. Do you see this abating anytime soon? You know, some things are going to go down and others are going to go up, but it's still going to stay high. And even when they go down, they're still way up from where they were. And when you look at the real inflation numbers, for example, you're looking at the average home now, $416,000. 
That's not added into inflation. Why not? Well, because we're going to make up anything we want, and we don't want to put that in there. We don't want the inflation numbers to be higher. How about energy and food as well? You know, I mean, right. we exclude it, that yeah. too. Yeah, because if you're eating steak and now you're eating chopped meat, well, you change your, 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 the way you're doing things. So this is – we're going to change it. And the reason they did this, by the way, and the guy that did it the worst was Bill Clinton. And they don't – because Social Security is, is related to inflation. So to cheat you out of your Social Security, they keep inflation low. And number two, when inflation is low, they keep interest rates low. So the bigs keep buying up everything they want. And number three, when you go to John Williams' shadow stats, the inflation numbers that they're saying, 9.1, it's more like 20%. Uh, w- do you see any hope on the horizon long term? I mean, it no, sounds. Well, you know, they made bad situations worse with these sanctions. You know, the sanctions have, have hurt the people. They haven't hurt Russia. They, they, the ruble is now, what, at a seven-year high? Mm-hmm. China, Russia just had its, its one of its best uh, years yet with the trade deficits. It went down so much. So, no, it, it's only hurting the people. These are What people have to understand is that you have imbeciles in control. People call it a government. It's a crime syndicate. You got dumped. I, I was the assistant to the secretary of the New York State Senate at 26 years old. It was the worst job I ever had in my life, and I quit after one year. I, I'm not the kind of guy that likes to watch grown men grovel to suck their way up to the top. And all the dopes that you got out there that are giving us the orders of what to do, the bureaucrats, they spell it wrong. Bureaucrats. These are dumb people that can't get a job in the real world that suck into the political system. So you have a bunch of imbeciles running the show, and they're running it into the ground. And then when you go back to inflation, look at the fraud. Oh, no, this isn't real inflation. It's uh, temporary. Remember that? Right, transitory. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. It's transitory. And now in the new woke world, why don't we call it transgendatory? We'll really be whacked out. (laughs) Uh, One of the economic areas that has hit people particularly hard, especially during the summer, especially in, in the aftermath of the prohibition on the import of Russian oil, has been the energy sector. The energy sector uh, prices have really hurt people. The lower you, uh, the, the less money you make, the more you're hurt by the sky high gas prices and it's affecting energy, no matter what sort of energy that you use electric, gas, oil, whatever it is, it's all costing more. Uh, any relief in sight on the energy sector? Not much, not much, because when the winter comes, the prices are going to go back up again if they keep these sanctions on Russia. And if you think we're getting hit, here, you should be in Europe. I mean, their natural gas prices have skyrocketed. And uh, they 40% of the natural gas that Europe uses come from Russia. So how stupid could you be to cut off uh, you know, the, the, the main artery? So no, this is going to get worse. We see it getting worse. And you're looking at people like J.P. Morgan Chase. You know, they're bringing the numbers way up in um, in in oil, crude oil. We, and again, and again, current events form future trends. And now you're hearing more and more coming out of Israel and the United States about stopping Iran from going more nuclear. And they're talking about actually attacking Iran. If war breaks out in the Middle East, I mean, it's over. You're going to crash the economy. You'll crash equity markets. 
it, it'll be it'll be unparalleled. Mm. Um, cryptocurrency. That's an area where it would seem like it couldn't go. It, it couldn't go anywhere but up. And then it seemed to crater. A lot of people said this might have been some sort of a bubble. A lot of folks were looking to crypto as sort of uh, this generation of digital gold as a possible hedge against inflation, as a possible way to safeguard money against uh, the uncertainty of uh, all sorts of fiat currencies. Where do you see cryptocurrency these days and where is it going? You know, it's it's a t- we gave the breakout points for for Bitcoin. You know, we've been pretty accurate on it. When it was way way down, we said when it broke up above ten thousand, it would it would fly much higher. And then when it got to the twenty thousand twenty five thousand range, we said it would go much higher. And then when it started coming down, we said if it goes below uh, thirty five thousand, it's going to go a lot lower. And it did. It's a guessing game. Nobody knows. It's brand new. I mean, what are we talking about? Something 12 years old. And here's what's going to really kill crypto. It's when the governments go digital and they're going to do it. They're going to go digital. They're going to get rid of that dirty cash. They're going to go to digital trash so they know every penny that you spent, where you spent it, what you spent it on, so they could follow everything that you're doing in this new technocracy world but primarily so they could get every penny in tax dollars that you spend. So when that happens, they're not going to want any competition. And it could happen overnight. People forget, go back to 1933. All of a sudden, the president says, turn in your gold or you go to jail. And they'll do the same thing again. We're talking with Gerald Salente. He's the founder of the Trends Research Institute. In reading the most recent edition of the Trends Journal, I was turning to the geopolitical trends to read up on where you see us going with Ukraine. But I was very interested in your take on where things are going with China. Where do you see things heading with China? Is the U.S. heading towards an inevitable armed conflict with China? If the U.S. Oh, – it, it, yeah, there's no way that the United States is going to beat China. And let's, let's put it into reality. They couldn't beat the Vietnamese. They couldn't, beat, they couldn't beat the Iraqis. They couldn't beat the Afghans. They're not going to beat China. China today is, is – com- they're coming out against America. They're, they're, they're saying that you know, one after another, day after day. They're coming out against America. The 20th century was the American century. As we see it, the 21st century is going to be the Chinese century. And the reason being is that the business of China is business, and the business of America is war. The Chinese ambassador told the U.S. today that the new Cold War will leave no winners. That's the quote. So the United States, you're watching watching the end of an empire. And if we keep going in this direction, it's going to keep going down and down. He said, they go on, they said, there's not a country that wants to have a Cold War since no one could come out as a winner. And and, and he said, the only losers from, from a new Cold War, no country wants a Cold War. And the ambassador said this. Just today, so so uh, they, they're, they're, all these threats about Taiwan and on and on. They're going to do what they want to do. They are 1.4 billion people. 
You're not going to stop them. The Trends Journal also focuses on the U.S. drone murders. And this is an issue that I've been very vocal on for a long time, sort of the mystery with which we determine who gets put on this drone list, the uh, cover-up when the wrong people get droned, the, uh, the, the questions that emerge that are legal, that are political, and that are military. A lot of folks hear about these drone murders, and this is one of the few areas that uh, brings Democrats and Republicans together these days. They say, all right, we killed a terrorist with a drone. Good. Uh, what's the matter with all these drone killings that the U.S. is doing in places like Syria? What if what if Syria and Somalia and Sudan, we want to get this guy in America. Let's go kill him with a drone. How How would Americans take to that? Uh, not very well, I'm, I'm guessing. All right, now let's put it into perspective. Who's your number one? Who's the big drone killer that the Nobel Peace of Crap Prize winner, Barack Obama, quoted in the book, Double Down, I'm Really Good at Killing People with His Drones. When I say that you got mentally ill people running the show, all you got to do is look at the list of pl- clowns that play president. I mean, that's the words from him. He's always, folks, folks. He was always so proper, folking us all the time, folks. You know, if I said to you, Frank, I want that guy Gaddafi out of there. Oh, Salenti, what's wrong with you? But if you say, Gaddafi has to go, we're bringing freedom and democracy to Libya, <laughs> the richest country in Africa, where more people had more rights than most of the places around the world and benefits. I want that guy Assad out of there. He must go. And again, they're murderers. And you think we would be in eastern Syria or Libya or Iraq if their major export was broccoli and not oil? Let's talk about the big issue on the geopolitical stage right now. That's Russia and Ukraine. It's no secret. My view is pretty close to where you are on the Ukraine front, which is that uh, we should try and bring about a diplomatic end to this crisis. And the United States should not be uh, giving all sorts of money and weapons to one side, especially when that means agitating the country with the second largest stockpile of nuclear weapons in the world. But um, to, there are a lot of folks in this audience that disagree with me and that disagree with you. And let me do the best that I can to try to represent their position. How can the United States stand idly by while Russia aggressively attacks its neighbor and uh, does so in a particularly brutal manner? Doesn't the United States have, at the very least, a moral obligation to step in and, uh, and help the Ukrainians as they're being invaded by the Russians? Do the people know why all this happened? Do they read the Trends Journal going back to uh, spring of 2014 when the United States overthrew the democratically elected government of Viktor Yanukovych? Do they know that watching Victoria Nuland, the former undersecretary of state under Obama, uh, going um, – you could Google it up – December 2013, Washington, D.C., saying that the United States spent $5 billion to NGOs in Ukraine to, quote, bring peace and democracy. Do the people know that there was a deal made that Ukraine has been – by the way, the European Union, could look it up, Ukraine they, they called one of the most corrupt countries in the world. 
So now going back, what happened was Ukraine's been busted since the Soviet Union broke up. Yanukovych needed dough. He went to the EU and the IMF, and they were going to make a deal with him. Putin said, I got a better deal. I'll give you lower interest rates, and I'm going to cut the price of your gas. Okay, we'll go with you. That was the overthrow. The war starts. What happened? They killed over 15,000 Ukrainians in eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region. That was a separatist region. They voted for Yanukovych. They didn't want that people called the Nazi government of Ukraine, run by oligarchs. And so it's been going back and forth. Then they had the Minsk Agreement, brought to you by France and Germany. And that the separatist region, there wouldn't be a separate country, but they'd be a separatist region. And they agreed to that until they could come to a better peace term. And Ukraine said no. And they the bombs away. Number two, it's none of my business. It's none of my business. You want to go to Ukraine and support them? Go. Oh, it's only go. Oh, they're going to take down the statue of Catherine the Great. Oh, Catherine the Great. Oh, who's she? Oh, she was only around since what? Middle 1700s. And, oh, and this has been going back and forth with Ukraine and Russia, calling whose territory is what since the 1700s. And you're telling me I got to get involved in that? Here, all of these people, as I see it, the ones, and again, the motto of the Trends Journal is think for yourself. I honor people like General George Washington, the first president of the United States. A real general, not one of these guys, you know, that doesn't go fight and has a big mouth like Mad Dog Mattis. No, no. This is a man in his farewell address who said, quote, observe good faith and justice towards all nations. Cultivate peace and harmony with all. The nation which indulges towards another an habitual hatred or an habitual fondness is in some degree a slave. There are going to be those that say uh, that uh, the news this week is that Russia could be annexing more portions of Ukraine just as the way that we did, just as the way they did with Crimea about eight years ago. How can the United States, as the world's leading superpower, or maybe the co-leading superpower with China, if the Trends Journal is correct, how can the United States just sit by while a country annexes territory that it doesn't properly uh, – that it doesn't properly have a claim on. Again, it's, it's it's their issue, not my war. They should have settled it. We said this in the beginning. They should have had a peace agreement. Totally against the war, not my war. I am an American. Mm. I believe in George Washington. He warns us. You could read his farewell address. Number one, stay out of what's going on in Europe. Oh, we're going to fix it? Did a great job in Vietnam. Love what you did in Iraq. How about Syria? Let's go to Libya. It's not our business. This country's rotting in front of us. Look at it. $60 billion they sent already since February 28th to Ukraine. This is not a proxy war. Hey, Frank, give me a gun. I want to go blow the guy's brains out across the street. Are you an accessory to the crime? It would appear that I uh, that I am. Yeah. Not appear. You are. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, we see Vladimir Putin spending a lot of time with Erdogan and Turkey 
and the uh, the Grand Ayatollah, the supreme leader in Iran. Do you think that the United States siding with Ukraine in this conflict has driven those three powers, Turkey, Iran, and Russia, closer together? Oh, yeah, and throw in China. Mm. Of course they have. Why? You know, there's not a peep about peace. Not a peep about peace. Anybody that wants to go fight, go fight. It's not my fight. This country's rotting in front of us. You want to talk about violence and crime? You know, you get the Trends Journal. Go back when they launched the COVID war. We warned about this. When people lose everything and have nothing left to lose, they lose it. They, this COVID war, the damage that's been done is incalculable. And you know what the clowns are doing now? They're blaming it on the pandemic, all the economic de- declines, all of the problems. They're blaming it on the, de- on the pandemic, all the drug overdoses, the on and on. It's not the pandemic. It's the moronic politicians that force their draconian dictatorial mandates on us. Hey, Frank, my name is Andrew Cuomo. I'm a little daddy's boy, born on third base, thought I hit a home run, renaming the Tappan Zee Bridge after my daddy. I'm going to flatten the curve. They made this crap up. It was all political science. No, no, not a scintilla of scientific evidence. So what I'm saying is you have to put this all together. So when you're talking about all these countries uniting in different ways, the destruction that has happened and how we're focusing on war as our nation is going down, as people are living to paycheck to paycheck, as the streets are filled with homeless, as crime is skyrocketing, and I got some clowns saying – my name is Anthony Blinken. Oh, yeah, another daddy's boy. I went to Dalton. I went to Harvard. Yeah, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, bullets, bombs, and banks. I'm going to fix Ukraine? What, are you kidding me? You can't fix a damn bridge that's rotting. Gerald, tell me what you're doing this Saturday. There's this big rally for peace in Kingston, New York. Uh, I am tied up uh, this Saturday. Otherwise, I would be there uh, because this is exactly the kind of thing that I think we need more of. And I hope there is more of them, including in New York City. But it's this Saturday in Kingston, uh, the Peace and Freedom Rally at the Crown Garden at the Four Corners of Freedom. Who's speaking? What's this all about? What are you trying to do? I launched Occupy Peace. OccupyPeace.com. You can get people get all the information there. I have Judge Andrew Napolitano, Scott Ritter, Gary Null, Phil Giraldi, former CIA guy. Here's Occupy Peace. Close the bases overseas. We shouldn't be there. It's under the war. It's not our. It's not our problems. Use the troops. Secure the homeland. Put them to work to rebuild our rotted infrastructure. Give them skills like the Work work Progress Administration of the 30. And number four, you want to go to war? Let the people vote. We're the ones that fight the war with our body and our lives, not not the senator's son. Can you imagine Pete Buttigieg going over there and fighting? Can you imagine fat mouth Lindsey Graham fighting? McConnell? You want to go fight, go fight. Let the people vote. Let the people vote. Oh, another guy, by the way, they'll, they'll hate me for this one. Dwight D. Eisenhower, five-star general, Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces, January 17, 1961, farewell address. The military-industrial complex is robbing the nation of the genius of the scientists, 
the sweat of the laborers and the future of the children. We, they have taken over. You saw the budget that the Democrats mostly voted for. A couple of Republicans didn't. $800 almost $50 billion military budget. Occupy Peace is about peace, freedom, and the American way. We honor the founding fathers. And that's what we're pushing for, because I'm going to tell you, I'm a trend forecaster. I've been at this a lot of years. World War III has begun. The only way they're going to make it official is when, like, an atomic bomb, excuse me, a nuclear bomb or some false flag thing happens. Then they'll say it began. It's already started. If we don't unite for peace, we're going to die in war. So this event on Saturday, what time is it? And it's free for people to go, right? Oh, yeah, free. Uh, it's, it starts at 2 p.m., uh, John and Crown Street, Kingston, New York. This is where the seeds of democracy were sown. And we have, again, uh, we're going to have bands, the hot damn band. We have vendors, you know, people buy what they want. And, again, Judge Napolitano, Scott Ritter, uh, Gary Null, and Phil Giraldi, and myself. I, I've had Scott Ritter on the show. I've certainly judged Napolitano as a regular on the show. And uh, I, I found Scott Ritter to be pretty impressive. And I thought that uh, his answers on the Ukrainian front were, were pretty interesting. I got a lot of blowback for the fact that Scott Ritter was a convicted felon, specifically yeah. a, a convicted sex offender. I'm curious, have you gotten similar blowback? Yeah, uh, getting blowback. You know what I say to people? Look, I don't care who you, who you, had, who you had sex with, what you, you know, masturbate to. This isn't about that. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know about it. You're going to tell me that all the people in Washington, all the people in the military have never done anything wrong. This is about our lives on the line. This is about World War Three. So I don't even, when they start talking to me, I don't want to hear it. I'm only talking about the facts of Ukraine and what's going on. Save it. Well, good for you. Uh, the ra- the Occupy Peace Rally, the Rally for Peace and Freedom, it's this Saturday. It's at the Crown Garden at the Four Corners of Freedom, Crown and John Streets in Kingston, New York. Starts at 2 p.m., and it should be really something. Gerald, uh, let- I hope you do another one soon, and I hope you'll invite me. I'll certainly be there. Oh, I'd love to have you up here. Oh, I'd love to have you. Gerald Salente, uh, check him out, OccupyPeace.com. Read him in the Trends Journal. He's the founder of the Trends Research Institute. Thank you, Gerald. Always a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, Frank, and thank you for all you do of being a real man of freedom, peace, and justice. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Classic, if ever there was one. You want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Gerald Salente, please give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Uh, so 
month or so ago, I told you about uh, what was happening with our favorite cat, Bathsheba. We have three cats. My wife had them before we were coupled, certainly before we were married, and I am now the stepfather to these three cats. And Bathsheba is by far the nicest out of the three, the uh, the friendliest. So we ended up uh, taking her to the veterinarian when she was losing weight. They did some blood work and a bunch of other things. They didn't find anything wrong with her. Ultimately, they um, did some other testing, and she was still losing weight. And they put her on steroids. She's also on medication for high blood pressure. So she's taking two medications at the moment, high blood pressure medication and steroid medication. And then because she was still losing weight and they couldn't find anything else wrong with her, they thought that uh, the culprit was likely to be either irritable bowel syndrome or lymphoma. It was not irritable bowel syndrome. It turns out it's very early stage lymphoma. So they referred us to a, a a cat oncologist that specializes in this sort of thing. So yesterday, my wife drove uh, about an hour to Paramus, New Jersey, to visit the cat oncologist. Now, you can imagine this cat was just thrilled to be in the car for an hour in her carrier. My wife even had to pull over because she was she the cat was panting. And which cats are not like dogs. They're not supposed to pant. That's how upset she was and nervous she was. And she had pooped in her carrier, which she very rarely does. Even when she, even when we moved her a couple of times, she never did that, moving from one residence to the next. But she was just sick of being in that car for an hour, and she was nervous. So my wife pulls over, cleans her up and so forth, continues on to Paramus, New Jersey, meets with the cat oncologist, and uh, the good news is that it appears that uh, it is still pretty early on in the uh, in the staging of lymphoma and that uh, that it looks like she's going to get chemotherapy, which is going to be administered from home. And most cats that are in her position are at this point, they if they take this oral chemotherapy, which I think she's going to have to take in perpetuity, they can live normally and a healthy life with minimal symptoms or anything of that nature for at least another two years. So that's certainly good news. So we're going to keep her on her previous other medications, the steroid and the high blood pressure medication. She likes one of them. I don't remember which medication is which. The she, One of them is chicken flavored. She really likes that one. And the other one is sort of cherry flavored. She doesn't like that one. But this new doctor said that she would. Uh, they would give us that other medication, I think it's the steroid, in a flavor that she likes. That's also chicken-flavored. So she'll be on three medications, and hopefully uh, they'll be able to uh, to help her, and hopefully she'll have at least another couple of good years left because uh, she really is such a kind cat, very nice to strangers, visitors, everybody, other cats, other people, just about everybody. She's uh, she's everybody's favorite, including ours. So a lot of folks had uh, had asked about what the latest was with with Bathsheba. That's the latest that we went to the oncologist. We got a prescription. We're starting this chemotherapy right away. That's the story. So uh, hopefully wishes the best of luck. 800-848-9222. Brian Kilmeade coming up in our fourth hour and Chuck Darrow. Coming up next hour in our Atlantic City and Casino Report. Let me say hello to Joe in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. One of them is chicken flavored. Chicken yes, yes. Hi, Frank. Hey, Joe, I'm going to put on? you on hold. Turn your radio off. Yousef is on Long Island. Hello, Yousef. 
Hey, I just wanted to call and basically say I give a big shout out to Gerald Salente. I think he's so smart. I think he's one of the greatest Americans alive. He's not a coward. He tells it exactly like it is. I've been to his rally. I'm so sad that I can't go to his rally this Saturday. But he's just a really, really smart guy. And I just want to urge all your listeners, you know, to go and look into the Great Reset and Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and how much they've been talking about depopulation. And in 2010, Bill Gates said during a TED Talk that he wanted to depopulate the planet using vaccines and, you know, everything that's been going on with this pandemic or scamdemic, whatever you want to call it, has been very suspicious. And they really want to there's never been more people alive on this planet than there is now, 7.5 billion. And they really want to reduce it because uh, they say the resources are finite and they're they're brainwashing us. And Gerald, you know, he's 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 a brilliant guy. And I just would urge everybody to go out and listen to him. I think he's just a smart, really great guy. And I'm happy you had him on the show. Well, Yusef, uh, that uh, I, I first of all, thank you for your nice comments about the interview and with Gerald Salente. I have seen that claim that Bill Gates um, plans a depopulation of the planet through uh, through vaccines. I'd be curious if you could send me the uh, the unedited clip because the yeah. a, a lot of the a lot of the um, sort of the fact checks about that say that the the edits of him saying that are a little are a little misleading. So if you have an unedited clip of him saying that, I, I'd certainly love to see it, if you could email that to me. Absolutely. Do you want me uh, – what's your email? It's, I don't know it's, the email. I can... Sure. It's frank.morano, frank.m-o-r-a-n-o, at wabcradio.com. Okay, so frank.morano at wabc at, at wabcradio.com. At wabcradio.com. I'll be sending it to you momentarily. Thank you. And it's unedited. It's from a 2010 TED Talk, and it's available all over the Internet. But I will definitely send it to you. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, so uh, I've seen different fact checks with with this claim, and uh, this has persisted for years. And people have accused Bill Gates of uh, calling for the killing of millions of people using vaccines. I don't buy that, I got to tell you. And um, Gates was referring in what I've read about this particular video to his belief that improving health and reducing child deaths, including through vaccine, can have the effect of limiting future population growth. Uh, But uh, I don't think it's it's the depopulation declaration that uh, that Youssef claims that it is personally. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. If you do call, please turn your radio off once you get put on hold. Otherwise, it uh, it will only get Kenneth in trouble. That's the only purpose that it will serve. Poor guy has enough, uh, has enough trouble because he's uh, eating pasta without cheese. He recently learned about this condition that prohibits him from uh, from having cheese, and he's suffering with it. So the last thing he needs is to get screamed at by management or by me for, you know, his inability to get people to turn their radio off. So 800-848-9222. Hey, uh, it is looking like there are more and more calls for someone other than Joe Biden to run for president in 2024 on the Democratic side. So I would be curious if you're a Democrat, who you'd like to see run in place of Joe Biden. Uh, because the Washington Post, they listed 10 candidates and there's some other folks talking about other folks, maybe primarying him. 
Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. If nobody calls in with suggestions about that, then we'll talk about something more fun. Because honestly, I, I find it tougher and tougher to talk about politics in a serious way on the radio because people, no matter how how you try to approach it, people just seem to get crazy about this stuff. So if you can talk about it in a manner that uh, will not get crazy, be my guest. Otherwise, we'll talk about something more fun, like, I don't know, how to stay cool in this oppressive heat or something along those lines. All right. Uh, as I mentioned, my email is frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. I saw this article of Mike Tyson making some rather disturbing remarks. I'll play those for you as well, and uh, we'll get your take on that. Look, Mike Tyson has a tendency to say things that are a little bit outlandish, and I think that might be the case here. We'll get into it. We'll try again to say hello to Joe in North Jersey. Hello, Joe. Yes, hi, Frank. Sorry, I transferred uh, to a new phone. (laughs) Sure, good. How much did you spend on your cat? Because I was... uh... We're cat lovers here. Uh, well, we have pet insurance for her. So oh. honestly, almost all, and, and I recommend that to people. So uh. w- almost all of the spending that we're doing on her, including for her chemo, almost all of that we get reimbursed for through her pet insurance. Oh, terrific, terrific. You know, today I was at the food bank and a friend of mine said that the contribution to uh, ASPCA is more than what tunnels to towers uh, has $19 a month, whatever it is. And I said, ASPCA asks for more money than that. And I'm like, why is it? Do I have they out of funds or are they big, big business? What is going on? Anyhow. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, could, I couldn't tell yeah. you. Okay, that's another issue. But what I, I guess called for was uh, uh, Kingston. I'm going there Saturday. This oh, great. Joe speaks so slowly and coherently that I can't believe it. He mentioned George Washington, Eisenhower. I mean, the public is so full of all the information, but we don't know what to do. And these rallies, like, of course, with Trump and the rest of them, uh, they're great. And hopefully uh, we get uh, re-energized and... Uh, and uh, march on each state capital. I'm Gra- surprised nobody's thought of that. March well, on the state capital. I am glad you're going to be there uh, on Saturday, Joe. Uh, yeah. Give give us a call back on uh, on Monday. Let us know how it goes. Okay, Frank. Great show, and I love you and uh, and your sidekick there, Curtis. Oh, <laughs> that's very kind. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate the call. Good mm-hmm. luck. Uh, good luck in Kingston on Saturday. That's wonderful. Yeah, for everybody that ends up going. I'd be curious if um, if you could give us your review, how it went, how many people were there, how the speakers were received. Uh, Judge Napolitano especially, I've seen him speak a number of times, and he really is, when it comes to civil liberties, when it comes to legal issues, one of the best speakers that there that there is in terms of both on the radio, television, and in a live setting, like uh, one of these rallies that you see in Kingston. So... Uh, I am uh, sorry that I can't be there. We, My wife and I made plans with another couple on Saturday uh, that have been longstanding. And I think my brother and sister-in-law are also uh, we're visiting with them. We haven't seen them in a while. But uh, I hate to miss that, but it's certainly going to be interesting. All right. Were you outside at all today? I went out to the grill to make some some burgers, right, some cheeseburgers. And... Before I could even put the cheese on the burger, it was melting. That's how hot it is. 
in the Northeast, it's sweltering. I got a call from a friend of mine in Nevada, 110 degrees, 110 degrees yesterday. It is rough. What are you supposed to do? If you have any solutions in terms of how to beat the heat, unorthodox solutions, I know um, Matt Blaze would say, get an air conditioner. Let me know if they are. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Record-breaking heat waves are sweeping the United States and Europe, making it even more important to stay hydrated, stay cool, and stay calm. Now, the, the other difficulty that we're seeing here is with the air conditioning running all the time. Now, I'm not that big of an air conditioning guy. In fact, when my wife and I were meeting the other day about ways to save money and, um, you know, you know, increase our savings and things of that nature, one of the things that I suggested was to get rid of the air conditioning because that does take a lot of energy usage. That went over like a lead balloon. So that was a non-starter. But, and now that we have a, a baby in his room, because we want him to be comfortable, we run the air conditioner almost uh, almost 24 hours. I mean, we keep it at, I think, 70. But to run that air conditioning in his room 24 hours, I mean, it, it gets expensive. But we're doing it because, obviously, we don't want him to be uncomfortable. So ex- we're seeing extreme heat all over the country all over the different different continents. And it becomes all the more important to stay hydrated, to stay cool, and quite frankly, to stay calm. And you're going to see blackouts. I guarantee you before the summer's out, we will see blackouts and brownouts because of all the energy usage that is tied to this excess heat. It's going to happen. Might happen this week, might happen next week, whenever. It's going to happen. Mark my words. I'm not rooting for that to happen, obviously, but it's just the nature of putting this much stress on the uh, the energy infrastructure. So what do you do about it? And I feel like we do this at least once a summer, but we do it with good reason, because several of you may have good strategies for beating the heat. Do you? Extreme heat can affect both our bodies and our brains. But there are some steps that we can all take to get through these scorching days. See, I kind of like these scorching days. I was only outside during the day because I I woke up maybe around 3 p.m. And then the extent of me being outside, I was outside twice today. Maybe three times if you include my grilling our dinner. But I went out to help my wife bring in groceries from the grocery store. I went out when I was walking around with young Carmine to sit on our porch for a little while. And then I went out um, and I went out to grill. Those were the only three times that I was out before, I don't know, 8 p.m. or so. And it was hot. It was not just hot. The air weighs on you. I guess this is humidity. It felt like the air was almost a blanket over you. And 
I kind of liked it. In fact, I am going to try and now would I have liked it if I was out there for more than a minute? Probably not. I may try to smoke a cigar today out there on the uh, on the front porch if that can come to fruition. We'll see. But I researched a couple of strategies for beating the heat aside from stay in indoors, use the air conditioning, use a fan, go to cooling centers. I love a good cooling center. Movie theaters are great. They keep it nice and cold in movie theaters, and they're opening a new one in my neighborhood this weekend, which is one of these dine-in theaters. I don't know that I'll get there this weekend, but I'm looking forward to going there in the future. So here are the, a few of the things that I found, and I'd love to hear your strategies for beating the heat. Here's one that I would not have thought of, but it's really important. Eat your water. So we all know to drink water, but that's not the only way to stay hydrated when it's this hot out. You can get your daily fill from certain foods as well. Foods, fruits like watermelon, cantaloupe, strawberries, oranges, grapes, vegetables like cucumber and celery. You know, I'm always trying to reduce my bread consumption. So I usually use these giant heads of lettuce as buns. So I think that's something that I'd suggest to people. Use some cucumber, celery, any kind of vegetables that have water. Obviously, loose-fitting clothes kind of goes without saying. But there was a study of certain tribes that thrived in the Arabian desert. And wearing loose-fitting clothes that let air circulate is the best way to dress for a heat wave, according to this one study. And here's an interesting one. And if you're up at this time, you may uh, this may not be a good fit for you, but it happens to be true. Sleep well. Heat waves can sneak up on people in the middle of the night. So try, and I have never done this, but this comes recommended. Try freezing your sheets and pillows and taking a cold shower before bed. And they say to avoid late night snacks, which help warm, which warm your body up. And if it's too hot to sleep comfortably, they say consider going to uh, somewhere else to sleep because that's important. And one thing that I'll always remind people, and it's kind of a cliche, but it's important, is to definitely check on your neighbors. They find that uh, an Axios reported this, the sociologist Egg, Eric Kleinenberg said that neighborhoods without strong social ties suffer the most during times of extreme heat. So friends and neighbors can help keep tab- tabs on each other and recognize signs of heat stroke. But do your best to cool off mentally, exercise some patience with the people in your life as we navigate the heat. Give me your tips on beating the heat. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Joe in Ronkonkoma. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. How are you doing tonight? Great. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, again, uh, me and my wife enjoy the pictures of your son on Instagram. Oh, thanks. He's so adorable. He's so adorable. Uh, I, you know I do lawns on the side. And yesterday, I had two houses doing my big cuts. And it was so hot. Oh. I thought at like 8.30 in the morning, it was like walking into a frying pan. Uh, but a buddy gave me a tip, and I've been using it. I take my T-shirt before I go out and cut, and I saturate it in water, and I put it on. Because what happens is your body sweats to cool. If you're already mm. cool, sweatshirt, you're sweating less. 
and I find it to be um, I find it to be more um, conducive with the heat, and I'm not sweating as much. Plus, I drink a lot of water, and I do eat watermelon, which does help. Well, that's good advice. I wouldn't have thought of that. Uh, so actually wet your T-shirt before you put it on. That's great. And and that's important for folks like you, Joe, who are doing a lot of work outside. Because one of the things I saw, I saw this on the news yesterday, or I read, I don't remember where I saw it, but people that are delivery people for UPS, for the Postal Service, for FedEx, that have to do a lot of running around to people's homes, they're passing out. Due to heat exhaustion. So especially if you have a job that involves you working outside, I think that is some pretty good advice that Joe just offered there. It's very interesting. You know what I like about these uh, these heat waves? Aside from this so much great heat wave related music. But um, uh, what I like about it is it's a great excuse to eat ice cream. You know, you, you if you eat ice cream during the winter, okay, you eat ice cream. But if you eat ice cream... While you're while you're especially from the ice cream man that comes to your neighborhood, whether it's good humor or whatever, there's a lot of different ones now. Um, you feel like you're doing your part to beat the heat responsibly. You eat ice cream during the winter. You feel like you're just a glutton. You feel almost guilty. You can have guilt free ice cream during these heat waves. Am I right? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Mike is in New Hyde Park. Hello, Mike. Frank. I have so many different strategies, and I'm fortunate. I have a big pool in the backyard, so that's one of my go-tos. I work with kids. I ride my bike to work. I don't drive. I take my ball cap, and I soak it, and I freeze it. And I swear to you, by the time I get to work, it's like it's already dry. But I put it on my head. Um, but like you, yeah, I, I think I think you have to consume nutrient-rich things like watermelon and and water. And I work with kids, so I'm in a climate-controlled environment. Thank God. I mean, fr- frankly, one of the classrooms I work with is like we call it the ice box. It's almost too cold. We laugh about it. They call me Mr. Freeze. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. But there are many ways to do it. And I'll tell you something, Frank. I'll take summer and heat over winter any day. Maybe I'm just getting old and grouchy. I can't stand winter. I'll take the heat any day. Well, see, I like both. And thanks, Mike. You know, that cap trick is interesting because somebody just reached out on, to me on Twitter, and I don't know if it was Mike there as well. You could do so at Frank Morano. They said a version of the sheets thing is to put your summer cap in the freezer for a few for a cool boost. I have never done that, but I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that today, actually. I When I get home, I'm going to throw my cap, my Atlantic City cap, in the freezer, and then maybe when I wake up, if... If Carmine is napping and doesn't need my immediate attention, I'm going to go out to my front porch, put my cap on and smoke a cigar while I which is not recommended by anyone, by the way, um, for as a beat, a beat the heat strategy. But it's nice. You're out there. You see the neighborhood and um, I'll do my work out there for the afternoon with my frozen baseball cap on. I'm going to try that. It, it makes sense, right? 800-848-9222. Eddie is in Ocean County. Hello, Eddie. 
Hi, Frank. You're confusing me you, you, when you say that you don't like AC. I mean, you're you're the biggest AC guy around. <laughs> you're doing the AC report. <laughs> Fair tell enough. Tell you the truth. <laughs> tell you the truth, uh, Frank. So I I wear uh, in the summer the whole the whole year round long sleeves, long long pants, and you know I I don't find it so so bad to get all sweaty and everything. You just jump in the shower in the middle of the day for like a five minute shower, quick thing. I guess it doesn't work if you're you're at work if you're not home, but I mean yeah. I'm in yeah I'm in school. I'm I have a dorm in, in in my school, so I could just jump in the shower. You know it cools you off. You're fresh and it's it keeps you going the rest of the day. Yeah, well, that's that's good advice. If you're in a position to do it, I think that's great. Uh, we are going to be talking Atlantic City with Chris with Chuck Darrow in just a few minutes. I'm looking forward to that conversation. There's a whole lot happening down there. We'll tell you about it. Uh, Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Original Rick. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Just a quick word about you were talking about the, the power grid yes. and expecting blackouts and all that. You're absolutely correct. First of all, I'm just wondering, they're already giving the uh, – Public service announcements, please curtail your usage during the day. Don't do your wash. Don't use your dishwashers. What do they think is going to happen when all these people are plugging in their electric cars? (laughs) You know, that is a great great point. That's a great point, Rick. Are they not going to plug in during the day when they need to recharge? I mean, they need to beef up the grid before the electric cars. They're putting the electric uh, cars before the cart, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, that's um, that's a fine observation, Rick. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Chris is in Mount Vernon. Hello, Chris. Hey, what's up, Frank? Rick is 100% right, by the way. But uh, anyway, yeah, they have these things called cooling towels. My brother-in-law gave me one. It's pretty awesome. It's similar to the, like, wetting your T-shirt type of thing and all that. But it's like a, it's almost like a scarf, but it's, it's you wet it and... Just like whip it around a little bit and throw it around your neck, and you just—it makes your whole body feel cool. But by it's, that a, on your neck. it's not a regular towel; it's a special thing. It's, it's yeah. It's almost like uh, the material is like super like absorbent. It's almost like a chamois type of thing. Huh. And uh, you you wear it around, you put it around your neck, and it, it keeps you cool. And if it, if it starts to warm up a little bit. You just give it a quick whip. You whip it up and down a little bit. You put it back on your neck, and it just feels cold again. Oh, that's neat. I'm looking these up now. Uh, that's pretty cool. I don't have any of these, uh, but I may get one of these. That's fun. Thank you, Chris. See, this is why we do this segment. This is a public service for you. How do you beat the heat? Now you know. 800-848-9222. Laura is on Staten Island. Hello, Laura. Hey, Frank. Um, about the ice cream idea in the heat, it's only a good idea if you're well fit because if you're fat, I don't know if you've ever been in that position and you have ice cream in the heat, you, you feel just like a big fat pig. Uh, if you have ice cream and you're sweating away and you're fat and your system is all screwed up because of that, what I recommend for the heat, and this is applicable to everybody, is unlimited watermelon and I think generally you should have at least a gallon of water a day. And on a hot summer day, I would say a gallon and a half of water. But watermelon is always a good idea. Okay, well, uh, I I can't disagree with you, Laura. That certainly is a very effective summertime treat. You know what they say is also good? And it's a little counterintuitive. But they say spicy foods when it's this hot is helpful because they say – if you, and I like spicy food, so this is good for me. They say if you eat a lot of spicy foods, 
it causes you to sweat. And the sweating, even if it's due to spicy foods, it actually cools you down. So isn't that interesting? So there you go. Maybe if you want to combine the two, maybe have some watermelon and you throw some Tabasco sauce on there, right? I guess that would be the best of both worlds. Dave is in Yonkers. Hello, Dave. Yeah, so when I worked outdoors, I would wear a a wet bandana around my neck and I carry a spray bottle with water. That would really work. Okay, a wet bandana and a spray bottle. That's that's interesting. You know, when we went to the ball game... On Sunday, my, uh, my our friends, Mark and Maureen, they brought Carmine a fan that had a little bit of a water spritz to it. It's a little mini fan, and it would emit water, and the water – so the fan would, would fan you. It's an electric fan, and the water would spritz you. So that's kind of the same concept, but uh, all right, a spray bottle and a bandana. Okay, make a frozen bandana. That's right. I just got an email from Neil here who said if you put your cap in the freezer – why not put your underwear there, too? Why not? Why not? Especially if you're a lady. Why not throw all your undergarments in there? Uh, does anybody do that? I would think that would be pretty effective. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really experiment with a lot of this stuff tomorrow. i got to tell you. My, my wife is going to open the freezer looking for whatever tomorrow, and then she's going to find a cap in there, a, an undershirt, some boxer shorts. She's going to wonder what went on in that freezer. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Carol is in Queens. Hello, Carol. Yes. Hi. How are you? I always love your show, but I did today in particular oh. because you were so sweet about your cat. Oh, thanks, Carol. I couldn't. I couldn't believe it. And it, it takes a real man to love a cat. So you know, flatter yourself. Well, thank you. This is actually a very lovable cat, though. She's uh, oh. she's much more lovable than most. I must say. Does Carmine like her? You know, yes. He, you know, he's very curious about all three cats, and Beth Sheba, <laughs> the one that we're talking about, she right. tolerates him the best. The other two, oh, the other two, don't really want much to do with him. They view him as as almost somebody that competes with us yeah, for their yeah. attention. But Beth Sheba doesn't mind him. She she will stick around and do whatever she's doing as long as uh as long as you know as long as it doesn't disrupt her too much. So Carmine does seem very curious about them, yeah. <laughs> That's really great. Yeah, just just hearing about your family when you do it from time to time, I love it. It's just it sounds really neat. So I'm happy for you. Well, thanks, Carol. That's so awfully kind of you. Thank you. Hopefully you're staying cool as well. Paul is in North Arlington. Hello, Paul. Hello. Hello. Frank. Hi. Nice to talk to you. Likewise. I just was wondering, you said uh, you're considering not having air conditioning. Yeah, that went over yet- like a lead balloon. Uh, my wife uh, my wife vetoed that. With, before I could even finish the suggestion, she, was, she had her bags packed before I could even finish getting the words out. Right, right. I mean, you said that the kid has the, a cool room. That's quite cool. Uh, uh, 70 or whatever, that's <laughs> it's just the discrepancy there. It's pretty big. Not having an air conditioning. Yeah. And well, then, you know. I, you know, again, we have uh, we have window units, right? We have so there's uh, right. one, two, three, four. I think we have six air conditioners in our house and all. So oh I God. was suggesting kind of 
why don't we get rid of all of them if we have to, or not at least not reinstall them, and if we have to keep the one that's in Carmine's room there, we'll just keep that there and get rid of all the rest and forget about it. That did not go over well, so that was a non-starter. All right, all right Paul, thank you. All right, uh, we're going to talk Atlantic City, the other AC, uh, with Chuck Darrow in just a moment. Chuck Darrow is uh, a really great reporter and an interesting guy. He uh, will join us straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. Well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. He blew up his house too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble busting in from out of state. And the DA can't get no relief. Gonna be a rumble on the promenade. And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies, someday he comes back. Put your makeup on, fix your hair up pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City. Ah, yes, it is time for our weekly look at one of the most interesting communities anywhere in the world. And I can't think of anybody more interesting to look at that community with than Chuck Darrow. Chuck Darrow is a veteran journalist, a casino lifestyle specialist. And uh, these days he's a writer for Philadelphia Weekly, for the Sun Newspaper Group of uh, South Jersey, and for Better's insider.com chuck it has been way too long since uh we spoke either on the radio or in person it's great to talk to you again uh right back at you baby it absolutely has been too long and i am uh thrilled and delighted to be joining you yet again hey chuck what's well, going on since the last time we spoke on the radio our show's now airing in nevada as well and we're very happy to be carried on the nevada talk oh, network i did not know that well, wow. sir, yeah well that's that's what what i'm uh, i'm going to tap into your expertise on that one as well how much time have you spent at the casinos in nevada and how do you compare the casino experience in a place like Atlantic City, New Jersey, with the kind of uh, casinos that you might come across in Nevada? Well, first of all, when you say Nevada, are you talking about the entire state or specifically Las Vegas? Because there is no comparison between the two in um, Las Vegas. And, or, I'm sorry, between Las Vegas and Atlantic City. Las Vegas is, is an entirely different animal for any number of reasons. But the casinos outside of Las Vegas, there, there are only two other um, jurisdictions, gambling jurisdictions, really, in Nevada. Now, that's not to say there aren't a lot of casinos throughout the state, but if you're familiar at all with the state, it is really huge and really uh, sparsely populated. Uh, it's pretty much the anti-New Jersey. Gotcha. Okay. There's something, oh, yeah. No. So – and I, Atlantic City's casinos uh, that I, I I can't say and well there's Lake Tahoe and, and Reno and unfortunately I have yet to get there but I have been in Laughlin 
and I have been uh, in other parts of the state outside of Las Vegas. And uh, the Atlantic City properties absolutely measure up to those and probably more or less surpass them because their functions are different. Um, but you can't compare anywhere to Las Vegas for, for any number of reasons, just beginning with um, the fact that Las Vegas is um, Las Vegas primarily operates not even really as a tourist destination, although that is certainly a major part of it. But what makes Las Vegas Las Vegas is the uh, convention business because it is nothing mm. at all for the city to host multiple one but certainly not i mean two but certainly one almost every week and in, in when things are really you know roaring out there of the conventions or trade shows that attract 20 30,000 people when um and, when Atlantic City legalized casino gambling in the late 70s a lot of folks were talking about Atlantic City as the Vegas of the East and they were even saying that maybe this could be a competitor to Las Vegas. That never that never materialized. They never really gave Vegas a run for its money. H- how come? Not true. What's not true? Straighten me out. No. no okay. So when Atlantic. Remember when Atlantic City um, legalized? Well, legalized it in '76 with the referendum vote. '77 when Governor then Governor Byrne signed the June '77 he signed the Casino Control Act into law, which legalized the uh, operation of, of casinos in Atlantic City. So there was a period between 78 and, excuse me one second. <clears throat> excuse me about, I'm uh, sorry about that. Sure. Um, anyway, there was a period of about 14 years when Atlantic City had the absolute monopoly east of the Mississippi River. So it was, at, so at the time, it was certainly siphoning off some degree of business of people from the East Coast who wouldn't otherwise have flown out to Vegas now could drive to Atlantic City. And by the uh, early to mid-2000s, right before the um, – when when the uh, economy went south in 2007, 2008, um, the 12 – at the time, 12 casinos in Atlantic City were actually grossing more, if, if memory serves – than the 25 or 35 casinos along the Las Vegas Strip. Are you kidding? Wow. I did not Uh, know that. Wow, that's wild. Yeah, yeah. Um, But then what happened was Las Vegas, because, you know, what Las Vegas has that Atlantic City doesn't have physically is just pretty much unlimited land. You know, Atlantic City is 48 square blocks, and there's not, not much you can do beyond that and within and stay within the city limits las vegas is just desert so they kept las vegas kept expanding and they built not only the mega resorts like starting with the mirage and i guess the ultimate example first the first one would have been um well there's mgm grand which is still probably the largest around but they're you know the, the uh, bellagio and then aria and so on and so forth and but what it did was to may become a real convention town to to specialize in that. And because they had the room to build tens of thousands of hotel rooms, I mean, Atlantic City total has less, I think, well, with 12 casinos, it was about 15,000 hotel rooms total, uh, including non-casino hotels. Now with nine casinos, I'm going to guess it's probably 10 or 11,000 maximum. And uh, I'm not sure. I should probably look into that. But 
Las Vegas, on the other hand, was able to accommodate 30,000 hotel or the sales of 30,000 hotel rooms every week. And well, also, not, not only do you need hotel rooms, but you need the convention space itself. And, and they built uh, Sheldon Adelson built the, the convention center. And now they're building a Madison Square Garden is opening this crazy looking globe of a convention hall uh, behind uh, Venetian in that in that area. Um, which would be, I guess, east of the, uh, of, let's see, uh, yeah, east of the Strip. So that, that's what makes Las Vegas Las Vegas. That's why you can't compare. It's it's only it's not apples and oranges. It's apples and Toyotas. Understood. Understood. Hey, one of the things that uh, that whenever I'm asked to make that comparison, and I agree with you that it's really there's no comparison between the com- two communities for a variety of reasons. But whenever I'm asked yeah. to make the comparison between uh, Atlantic City and Las Vegas, the first thing that I always mention is the incredible Atlantic City boardwalk, the longest boardwalk in, I believe, the world. And now, apparently, the Atlantic City boardwalk has been named the greatest boardwalk in the entire country. What's the story here? Who's naming this the country's best boardwalk and why? uh, that was was that Travel and Leisure magazine or Forbes? I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me. It now. was actually Foders, Foders uh, travel oh, website. Foders, okay, Foders. Forbes, Foders. Okay, Foders, which is a major travel uh, entity. I can't say just publication anymore because I'm assuming, like most other publications, the bulk of what they do now is online. Um, so any anyway, as it should be, because first of all, not only was it is it the longest, it was the first. It it gave the world, the concept of the boardwalk. But what I love about the Atlantic City boardwalk is that whether by design or just random luck or whatever, it has not become Mm Disney-fied. I love the the realness and the grittiness of the boardwalk. Me too, me too. You know, it it could have very well, and 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 that's you know part of the reason of Vegas's success, and also you know the weather is a factor in palm trees because we here in the east, you know, everybody loves palm trees because we don't have them. So, but 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 even the the, the Las Vegas Strip is kind of Disney fine. I mean, it's it's not it's not a family destination, not in that respect, but it's very corporate. All right, you have very, to go if you want to see a grittier Vegas. You got to go downtown. Right, exactly. And even downtown, uh, you know, with Fremont Street, yeah, it's it's grittier than the strip, but it's still like last I was there last last year and it's still kind of Disney fied mm. in that there's there's more of a, it's it's I don't even know how I would explain it, but it's sort of a more self conscious effort to attract people whereas atlantic city's boardwalk it's almost like here we are take us or leave it leave us you know that's what i I love about the boardwalk it doesn't appear to try to be anything other than what it is which is just a funky real and interesting thoroughfare that is unlike any other certainly that that i've ever ever seen yeah i mean there are some other pretty good boardwalks wildwood and and um, Ocean City, Maryland is pretty impressive, but it's it's not Atlantic City. There's something about Atlantic City 
And so many great uh, businesses along that boardwalk. Putting aside the the casinos, I mean the uh, the little shops are are just terrific. The uh, the the boardwalk bars. Uh, the fact that uh, it's just I think uh, I was glad yeah. to see them recognized as the best and, boardwalk in the country. And, and even even the, the sights and the smells. I mean, it's, it's a great place for people watching. You know, in on a hot summer's day, mm. that that intoxicating. You know, a blend of the odors of, you know, the salt air and um, suntan lotion and, you know, cheesesteaks frying on grills. I mean, it's it's it can't be beat. It's so I'm, I'm thrilled to pieces about that. We're talking with uh, Chuck Darrow. He is a veteran casino journalist these days. You could read him in Philadelphia Weekly and uh, bettersinsider.com. He also writes for Sun Newspaper Group of South Jersey. Chuck, how is uh, this summer treating Atlantic City thus far from what you've been able to tell? I It, it's, it's, it seems to be overall pretty good. I have to admit, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to get into specific casinos, but I found I was at one last week and um it was it was a Wednesday night, Thursday night, I guess last Thursday night, and it was not nearly as crowded hmm. as I would have expected it to be and as it would have been, say, this you know, July of two thousand, let's say, or July of two thousand five, uh, which was kind of the peak year of two thousand five, I believe was the peak year for um uh, revenue down so there. What do you by, attribute by that to? Is that uh, due to the prevalence of? Well, what do you think? Well, well, well let me let me finish the thought. Mm-hmm. But there are other properties that I've been to that are absolutely jamming. So and overall, I mean, the boardwalk seems to be as certainly as crowded as I've I've seen it in past summers. Maybe not more so, but there seems to be just a, a, a nice steady flow when I've been down there, which is a couple times a week. Um, it's, it's, it's a nice steady flow of people and and more, I think the boardwalk casinos are doing well because again, they're on the boardwalk mm. and there are other issues. I mean, for instance, for God, I mean, I, I mean, sometimes you have to name names because it wouldn't make any sense otherwise. Um, unfortunately, Borgata's transition, I think we might've spoken about this before, when Borgata was just absolutely eating every other casino's lunch, that was when it was owned. Well, it used to be a 50-50 partnership of Boyd and MGM, Boyd, Boyd Gaming, MGM Resorts. Boyd Gaming being a privately held family-run company and a, a large one. They have uh, casinos all over the country. And, and MGM Resorts, which is publicly traded. And a few years ago, maybe three, four years ago, something like that, five years at most, all of a sudden, MGM decided they wanted Borgata, and they bought out mm-hmm. Boyd. And there's a whole—it's a whole different mindset because it's a publicly traded, much larger corporation. So, I've you know I've had people tell me that they just don't find Borgata as it once was. For instance, uh, one of the things, one of the main reasons why Borgata was, and and it probably still is. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to, you know, get, overstate things or give false impressions. It, pro- but it, it probably still is at the moment the gold standard of Atlantic City's casinos. But it has been pretty much since it opened in, in July of 2003. And people who are, have been regular customers there for years are telling me that they just not they're just not finding it the same. There's not the same. There's something that's missing. And well, one of the reasons I started to say that Borgata's success over the, the decades now. Almost um, 
which was more than two. No, next year will be two. Will be twenty years. Is that when Boyd ran it? Brigada got fifty million dollars a year from from Boyd Gaming from corporate to do whatever management there felt was needed, whether it was uh, physical plant improvements or the creation of new restaurants. Of they tried a, uh, an outdoor concert venue one year. It didn't. I don't know. I'm not sure why it didn't work, but it didn't. But the point is, they got a, a very large amount of money to really, you know, to spruce things up. Whatever management felt. That went away, and so, um, but but yet, you go to Hard Rock and you go to Ocean, which to me, I think we discussed before, is the real success story of the past uh, year or two. Certainly, pandemic of the pandemic era, but Hard Rock is you go to Hard Rock and it is absolutely, you know, they're crushing it every which way. It, it is. It, I don't want to say it's packed, packed, but it, it, it's always crowded. Yeah, no, no, that is my uh, that's my experience, a- absolutely. And at all those properties, the the uh, the the degre- degradation of the experience at Borgata and just Hard Rock being being an incredible place, and uh, and Ocean. Speaking of Borgata, yeah. though, uh, they are now uh, once again offering the burlesque show, which yes. we haven't seen for a couple of years. No, it, the, for, the for, last the last performance pre-pandemic was, I believe, New Year's Eve of 2019. They uh, they did a, a, a week, or maybe it was December 30th. They they brought it back. It's usually like April to October, but they bring it back for the holiday week. All right. So tell and people then, about course, this uh, burlesque show if they haven't been there before. It is um, if you're familiar with the concept of burlesque, which was a Rather, it was sort of the place where polite society could kind of get its jollies, kind of walk on the wild side a little. It was it was the coarser, more vulgar little brother of vaudeville back when in, say, you know, from the 20s to maybe the 50s. And there were strippers, not the strippers that you find at gentlemen's clubs today. These were more elaborate choreographed dances that ended generally with the with the dancers uh, down to pasties and, and g-strings but comedy was a very large part of burlesque and nine years ago or ten years ago because it took a while to for him to produce the first one alan valentine uh who is the ziegfeld <laughs> i hope people get that reference still today oh yeah of atlantic city production shows um they were gotta brought him into they wanted a because at the time burlesque kind of was having a revival amongst the hipster crowd out in L.A. and then uh, Vegas um, discovered it and became a thing. And it, it, is, it has been just real. It's the only production show in the 19 years that Borgata has, has been there, the only regularly scheduled production show. And it is a throwback. The, 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 the girls or the women, I'm sorry, the women of the cast, the, the featured dancers and strippers, and that's what they are. They get down to to uh, pan, uh, pasties and g-strings because New Jersey law says you can't have nudity if you're in a building where you're serving alcohol, and it's it is is it sexy? Yes. Is it vulgar? Are, are the, are the, the, those numbers vulgar or lewd? No. And the proof is that women make up about half the audience hmm. and they love it as much as the men. And then there's comedy, and this is not the stand-up comedy talking about you know dating or whatever. Or politics. This is old, dirty, mostly the new comic because uh, the original comic for eight years, uh, a brilliant guy named Jeff Paramian, sadly died in 2020, not of COVID, of heart issues. And they, his, uh, the guy, you can't really replace Jeff Parami, but the guy who is now doing it, Chris Morris, he basically tells 
as I wrote in my review, you know, jokes, dirty jokes that were old when his grandfather was telling them in elementary <laughs> school. But but funny is funny. So it is adult. You have to be 21 to get in. It, it it's it's definitely goes against the grain of you know our our perpetually aggrieved politically society love uh, it politically correct society love it and that's part of the fun of it uh, that, hey that it's, I, I was at the um I was at the Hard Rock two weeks ago but I stayed out late playing baccarat until about six forty five so that means <laughs> I, uh, by the time I woke up it was time for us to check out I did not get to see the Van Gogh exhibit that was the first weekend that it was. At the Hard Rock, but I'm hoping to get to Atlantic City at least one more time before the end of summer and see this Van Gogh exhibit. When we think of casinos, we don't necessarily think of fine art. That is until now. What is this Van Gogh exhibit? Have you seen it? What's it all about? Yeah, it's okay. So this this is this is one of the two. Apparently, there were two separate ones, but they're sort of the same things. They're dedicated and they've toured the world. They've been literally around the world with this exhibit, and it's. it's Sort of, it's not interactive, but it's what they call immersive. So it takes up the entirety of the um, what is now the Seminole Ballroom, which is the main ballroom in Hard Rock on the second level. And you walk in, and there are these giant panels that alternate. I don't know how many there are, probably a couple dozen, and they they alternate between half of them give you biographical information about Vincent Van Gogh, of course, the famous uh, author or author artist of the late um, 19th century, who was most famous for cutting off his ear in a fit of madness. Um, and then he ultimately killed himself at age, I believe, 37. And he's considered one of the, you know, the great artists and his pictures today go for tens of millions of dollars if you can buy them, if they're, if they're available. And so part of that is just to buy – you read about his life, which was a very unhappy, unfulfilled, miserable life because in, it wasn't really until he died that he became Van Gogh. Before when he was alive, he was just another two-bit artist you know, trying to eke out a living. And then the other part, half of the panels um, are quotes about various – like the human condition and his condition generally drawn from correspondence, a lot of it with his brother, uh, Theo, I believe his name was. And then you go into the second room, and this is the immersive part. The walls, it's its basically 300, it's more than 360 degrees kind of because not only are his, um, you know, dozens and scores of his art, of his works projected on screens that fill the four walls of, of this part of the ballroom, but even there are projections on the floor. And there's music, there's some spoken word, and you, you really are sort of put in the middle of his artwork. So you see it. It's not just a, a two-dimensional painting, you know, in a frame. It sort of surrounds you. So it's an entirely different experience. Uh, the technology involved is very impressive. Uh, but as as I wrote in my review, you really have to have some degree of interest to to really avail yourself of the I see. Pleasure. So if you're not necessarily into art, this is not something right. that's going to win Gogh, you over. Or, or Van Gogh specifically. Yeah, I I it, I was I was I was I was impressed by it. It was certainly interesting, but I was not really huh. engaged because I'm just not wired that way. I don't have sure. that gene. I'm not a big, you know, art guy. So, but I you know, as as I as I wrote the key here to me, the, the real takeaway is that the uh, management team at Hard Rock is expanding the parameters 
of, quote, casino entertainment. That it doesn't just have to be music and comedy, that there there can be other things off kind of off off the beaten track or out of the box, the corner phrase, that will attract. Now, I don't know what numbers are. And I know they probably wouldn't release them. If I asked, they wouldn't tell me. But um, they their prediction was that over the course of the seven weeks, uh, it's there and it's there until I believe August 28th, 29th, that a hundred thousand people would come through, and mm. I, I don't, I don't think that's an unreasonable uh, number. But it's just so even, but even if it isn't quite that successful, I hope that the team there, Joe Lupo, the CEO, Mike Woodside, his uh, entertainment guy, that they continue to push that that envelope. That uh, to just you know, this is just so interesting and creative and different. That, to me, is, is the real value in the Van Gogh exhibit. Absolutely. They're doing a great job. Uh, just yeah. about out of time here, Chuck, but I have to ask you about the illusionists at Harris. What's the illusionists? It is a magic show featuring four separate acts. Um, it's it's toured at not just casinos, but theaters around the country for, for several years anyway now. Uh, it's not the first time it's been in Atlantic City. It, 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 Atlantic City in its heyday back in the 90s, early 2000s, Magic was an absolute summertime staple. There was usually two or three uh, big-time magicians. I mean, not David Copperfield big-time, but guys uh, like Jeff McBride and uh, Mark Kalin and Ginger uh, and uh, Lance Burton, who was the king of of the Strip at one point out in, in Vegas. So Harris is the only casino doing that this year. Usually I said there were two or even three casinos that would bring in summer-long magic shows. This is a very, not surprisingly, it's it's kind of a low-budget deal. There's not a lot of production. There's not um, a lot. There are none of the of the of the main uh, magicians use the giant devices. Um, there's some, but not like on a grand scale as there once was. However, the magic is really. I'm a magic fan. I always have been. Um, it's, it's varied. One guy's sort of a comedian. Uh, another guy is kind of a, a more traditional magician. Um, it's, it's just really a lot of fun. And if you like magic, if, if only because it's the only game in town this summer, but it's, it, it's, it definitely, if you're a fan of magic, it's absolutely worth seeing. Cool. Um, it's 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 a lot of fun. Cool. Well, I, uh, Chuck, it is always a treat uh, chatting with you, and uh, I'll look forward to seeing right you on my next city. trip to Atlantic City. Uh, people can uh, please, check yeah, you. Let's, you. let's try to make that. Yeah, let's try to make that happen. Absolutely, and, people uh, can I read your work. You early, and I thank you for the invitation. I always uh, have a great time. Well, my, it's my pleasure, Chuck. Folks can read Chuck's work in uh, BettersInsider.com, in Philadelphia Weekly, and with the Sun Newspaper Group. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Oh, yes, it is indeed a heat wave. There is a a lot of strategies in terms of how to stay cool. The one thing that everybody seems to agree upon is that uh, you do need to stay cool, especially when it's uh, this bad. Hey, uh, so, Matt Blaze, I heard a little something. I was listening to um, Rita Cosby, and then I was listening to other people all talk with Alex Barnard, is is he sick or something? What's your understanding of what his deal is? Well, he's always sick. There's something wrong. No, with him. no, no. I mean, I mean, physically sick. Yeah, it seems like he is. I I don't know what's going on with him. Well, then by I don't all know means, if it's he should come in here. Come in and sit down right next to you. Uh, there's something happening with him that seems to be some sort of cold, some sort of flu. He said, hey, I'll let you tell well, him. What's your story, Alex? What's going on? Well, don't you see the second head I have grown here no, on my shoulder? No, what's going no, on? I've been uh, hearing everybody console you on whatever mystery what? ailment this it's is. It's not a mystery ailment. But well, Rita so what's was the like, story? Rita just said, stay away from Alex. Yeah, what Rita well, I, I, did she really say that? Yeah. So yeah. What, now, honestly, what, what's your deal? I, I don't know. I'm just, you know, I've got a cold. But Rita, the thing about Rita is she, you know, when you say something like that to her, then it's like, Oh, you know, oh, I feel so sorry. I feel so bad for you. You got to take this. You got to take that. Make sure you're getting hydrated, you know, all all that sort of thing. But why are you coming to work when you're sick and inf- risking infecting everybody? It's not that it's it's just a cold. It's not like I I've tested negative for COVID several times. So, you know, I'm not I don't have the means to really take off from from work you because You can take I have, a sick day? You can take a sick day, right? Well, I mean, cuz then it it cuts into your Cuts into your, you know, PTO, and then I gotta. Well, that's you, what you know. it's called, PTO. Yeah, but I'd much rather use that for vacation and which get, a, I have and get the rest of us sick. Yeah, is what exactly. you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But then, so then we all have to take our PTO because you got us sick. You're not gonna get sick from me. How do you know that? To be honest with you, I'm probably I'm probably already sick. Are, are you? <laughs> Yeah, let me hear. Let me hear you cough into the microphone real no, quick. No, <laughs> you should. My advice, honestly, don't come to work when you're not sick. I mean, when when you are sick, to save your days for days when you're not sick, it's it's very it's very selfish, quite frankly. Well, I mean, I mean, this right. is from the guy that used the bathroom in an unauthorized manner yesterday. Yeah, okay, and fair. again today, by the way. Is that true? <laughs> Thanks, man. You know, <laughs> I didn't know that. See, I did not know that. All right, everyone does that. <sighs> Very well. All right. Well, carry on, Alex. Thank you. Great work. I'll, I'll carry on from a sure distance, please. The microphone. <laughs> Viviana is in Brooklyn. Hello there, Viviana. Hi there. Long time no speak to you. Really appreciate the show this evening. Um, uh, real quick, I wanted to speak about the elections, but really quick, my husband has this electronic, it's like a neck brace. And it might be by the sharper image. And what it does is when you turn it on, it emits cool air hmm. around your neck. What's it called? And he, I don't know, honestly. Hmm. It's, it's an electronic neck brace. Uh, like uh, it cools your, your, your neck. And, and really, you know, um, he wears it. He, he goes out into our porch and it gets really hot where, where he's at. And he wears that brace, and it works wonderfully. Viviana, I'm going to put you back on hold uh, because I know you wanted to make a substantive comment as well. So we'll get to you after the top of the hour if we can. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we have covered thus far. Next hour, the great Brian Kilmeade, a chance for you to win $1,000 and 
What's happening with the United States military? We'll get into all that and more. Your influence counts, so use it. Hi, it's Lou Dobbs for Priority Gold, America's precious metals dealer. These are volatile times with high inflation, soaring debt, wars on multiple continents, and rising financial stress. Central banks are buying gold to diversify their reserves, so are many Americans. Call Priority Gold and find out how precious metals can help you diversify your portfolio. They're highly rated and happy to help. Call 1-866-303-6357 or get a free gold guide at PriorityGoldGuide.com. That's Priority PriorityGoldGuide.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, there's a new survey out, which uh, I, I find very disturbing, and I think every American should find very worrisome. Uh, the, the results of a new survey of military and veterans and their spouses, including details on financial difficulties, are raising concerns about the future of the military said the uh, executive director of the organization that conducted the survey, the Military Family Advisory Network. Listen to this. Fewer military active duty, fewer veterans, and fewer spouses are likely to recommend military service, according to the findings. And the reasons are related to their own well-being. According to the executive director, Shannon Razazdan, At the end of the day, families are having a hard time making ends meet, and that's affecting their overall well-being. We see the connection between well-being and loneliness, well-being and housing, well-being and food security. And when you layer that on top of the fact that fewer people are likely to recommend military service, it paints a very clear picture of concern related to the future of the all-volunteer force. So that's a quote. This is the fourth survey fielded by the organization. Generally, they do this every two years. This time, the biggest surprise was the drop in the percentage of survey respondents who said they would recommend military life. Two years ago, excuse me, three years ago in 2019, 74.5% said they would recommend that. That dropped to 62.9% last year. And uh, now this is dipping even more. Now, this goes across age groups. 
the younger folks, older folks, they're all saying the same thing, more or less, which is it's trending in the direction of not recommending military life to others. Now, based on their answers, the reasons were related to frequent separations and the fact that military life is not conducive to family life. The fact that the survey was conducted on the heels of the military's exit from Afghanistan, that didn't show up in the findings. Uh, So if anybody says, well, they saw what happened in Afghanistan and now they're recommending it, no. This was largely a reflection of uh, things that happened before that. In general, over the years, a number of military children have followed in their parents' footsteps. But there are indications that those trends were waning, with other surveys finding that military parents are increasingly unlikely to recommend service to their children. A recent survey of military teens found that 65% still want to serve in the military. Now, look, at the rate that America loves getting involved in wars, if we have nobody to fight them, we're going to be up the creek without a paddle. So let me ask you, if you're in the military currently, if you're the spouse of someone in the military currently, or if you're a veteran or the spouse of a veteran, would you recommend military life to someone else? 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Why or why not? That's the question. All right. This report also pointed to a root cause of many problems that military families have understood for years, which is the military move. In 2021, those who had recently experienced a permanent change of station reported negative or very negative experiences with reimbursement of moving costs. That's interesting. And that's something that ought to change. You know, that's uh, something that I've noticed. Uh, Some friends of ours They lived on Long Island. He's in the Coast Guard. They're a couple and they have a family. And they moved to Cape May from Long Island. Then they are now they now had to move to Florida. And this is, I think, the fourth move they've done as a family. It's something that's very taxing on family life. One of the things that the survey also reflected is the burden of housing costs. The survey provided more data on the impact of rising Housing costs, financial stress, that, that's something that this survey also asked about. And that's getting worse. So housing, moving, the financial stress, a whole lot of others. By the way, I'm curious if you're a veteran or the family member of a veteran or an active duty serviceman, what recommendations you would make in order to make the military experience better? Um, for someone that, especially someone that wants to serve, have a family to serve. One of the recommendations that's in this report is increase the availability of child care. Also to increase the uh, basic allowance for housing. Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on other issues as well. Kristen in Pennsylvania has been holding a while. Hello, Kristen. Hello. How are you? Great. Thank you. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I was calling it about the uh, brisk uh, now offering in Atlantic City and how Atlantic City has changed over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was just—I think it's at the Borgata. So I was just oh, like, the burlesque show. Well, yeah, yeah, it's fabulous that they have it. I meant, but 
I mean, if you have one male comedian, why not have a female? So I was like, maybe I should just audition. <laughs> I, I think you should, Kristen. You should reach out to them. Are you a comedian? <laughs> yes, sir, I am. Oh, really? Where, from, where do you perform? Yeah. Um, Right now I'm performing in, uh, I guess, uh, Silver Springs, Maryland and D.C. All right. Well, and what what kind of humor do you uh, focus on generally? <laughs> Um, I'm new, so I don't like to put myself into a box yet, but mostly dry. <laughs> dry? Well, we like that. We like that. Can you can you give us a sample of, um, you know, some of your material that we might hear if we come see your show? Yes, no problem. Um, well, you know, I, I have a vagina, and um, it's good to be upfront about that these days. And I meant, I was also born with a penis. Uh, you know, a twin brother. Who would have thought? <laughs> okay, that's not bad. That's not bad. That's very, uh, that's very, very topical. Uh, Christian, it's probably not dry, but you know, there's yeah, some that's, wet ones out there. I, yeah, know? I was gonna I say that's that's not that's that's pretty that's pretty overt. That's not necessarily dry at all. Um, Christian, if people uh, want to find you and where you're performing, where can they uh, do that? Oh gosh, I read mine's dark. I shouldn't say dry. It's mostly dark. Um, you can find me. Uh, I'm Jamish, Jewish, and Amish, so that's me. Ah, Jamish. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> Fabulous. Uh, Thank you very much. But where? So where can folks find you, Kristen, if they want to see you perform? Um, I mean, I'm just I float. I'm I've done comedy in L.A., New York, um, Las Vegas. All right, well, and I'm just wherever I go, and right now I'm Tony Woods in D.C., so I'm happy with everything. Wonderful. That, that's that's the name that you use in D.C., Tony Woods? No, Kristen Mosley. Kristen. And I'm Jamish. That's what I go by, Jamish. Gotcha. All right, Kristen. Well, I'm glad you called. I hope to see you performing in Atlantic City sooner rather than later. There's a lot of great places, not just at the Burlesque Show, but there's uh, the AC Comedy Club. There's the Borgata. The Tropicana has comedy. Uh, Hard Rock yeah. has Howie Mandel's Comedy Club. There's stand-up comedy oh, all over Atlantic City. So hopefully when you're, when you're performing out there, let us know and call back and promote it, okay? Wonderful. I thank you so much. Have thank, a great night. Thanks, Kristen. Take care. 800-848-9222. I do want to um, get your take, though, on this survey, which is raising some serious questions about the future of the all-volunteer force. Do you find this worrisome? If you were a military serviceman or the spouse of a military serviceman, would you recommend military life to someone else? Why or why not? And if not... What would you do in order to improve the experience so that uh, military life could be recommended to someone else? 800-848-9222. Don is in Trenton, New Jersey. Hello, Don. Hey, how's it going? It's going, Don. It's going. Uh, what the hell are you doing up at 4 in the morning? <laughs> I'm doing my job. What about you? Yeah, I'm driving back from uh, down south. New Jersey. All I have right. to go back up north, unfortunately. Okay, well, what's on your mind this morning, Don? Uh, what other percentages that, how much can the military go down percentage-wise? Well, in terms, in terms of recruitment, I don't have those numbers uh, in front of me. Uh, so what were you guys talking about? All right, Don. Thank you. Anybody that was paying attention to my Hello. remarks, if you have a comment, please weigh in as you see fit. 800-848-9222. Bob is in New Jersey. Help us out here, Bob. Excellent. And I want to make the point 
in Israel, people have to go, according, I think they have to go in the military at 17 years old. This is a problem in America. We have people shooting each other everywhere, thugs in the street. Why nobody insists that we do military service at 16 years old, 17 years old, two years? What do you say, Frank? Well, so I am open to that. Uh, And we talked about that issue before, uh, the issue of conscription and bringing back the draft. I think it would be a tremendous character-building exercise for uh, young people of today. But, look, we do not need a military of 35 million people. We don't need a military of 30 million people. Uh, And I'm afraid to give the Pentagon that many troops because we'd be at war at 12 countries before lunch every day. Um, But I am open to that if we provide alternative, if it's national service, if it's not just military, but if it could also include uh, being maybe a teaching fellow or in the Peace Corps or doing something else that uh, that is two years commitment to something, something greater than yourself. Uh, that could include the military, but it could include other things as well. I'm open to that. And uh, look, at the rate that we're going, if this is to be believed, this survey from the Military Family Advisory Network, that the future of the all-volunteer military is in trouble, then we may have to go into that route. 800-848-9222. Robert is on Long Island. Hello, Robert. Good morning, Frank. How are you? I'm hanging in there, Robert. I understand you're uh, you're, you're a 21-year Army veteran? I am an 8-year Navy veteran, 13 Army. Oh, wow. Okay, so you um, got uh, you got a couple of branches under your belt. Yeah, but more importantly, Frank, I listen to you every morning driving in, but I had to call in today because when you talk about veterans, you talk about something that touches my heart. I've been helping homeless and substance-dependent veterans on Long Island for about 10 years with my... 501c3 and i have to tell you there are many many reasons why you're seeing a drop in the number of people enlisting but you're also going to see that drop in the number of people going into the police force and there's two parts to this the one part that i really want to focus on is why veterans can't survive and if you've served in the in the military on active duty you get a base salary but you also get what's called bah basic allowance for housing that helps you live in an area that has a high cost of living like New York. It's based on zip codes. But when you retire, like I did, you retire on only a base salary. So if you retire to, let's say, Tennessee, on a base salary of a captain with 21 years, you may be able to live comfortably. But if you retire to Long Island on a base salary mm-hmm. of a captain with 21 years, you can't survive. It doesn't even pay your mortgage. So a lot of veterans are telling their, their children especially in the Northeast, it's probably not going to behoove you to serve, especially, and this goes with the police departments too, in the climate that we have in the military and the police force where it's very woke, you can't speak your mind. You, you know how it, what I'm talking about when it comes to woke in the service and woke in the police departments. So there's a lot of factors adding to this decrease in people enlisting. So, and, and, and it's... It, and it's rightfully so. So, Robert, do you think that a lot of this, uh, especially those financial considerations that you mentioned for people that live in the Northeast, you think a lot of this could be solved by just raising the salary of uh, people that are serving in the military? No, I, you know what? Believe it or not, I, uh, I chose to run for Congress out here on Long Island last year just because of this issue. And I brought up to a state senator out here 
uh, I helped write a bill, and I hope it passes in New York, some sort of um, subsidy for veterans returning to the Northeast mm. that the government has to pay. Because if you lose $5,000 or $4,000 in your basic allowance of housing, you come home and you immediately become poor. There, there are um, 1.4 million veterans living out or below the poverty level in this country. There are still 137,000 homeless veterans. And this is what's adding to it. And where are most of the homeless population in these major cities where they can't afford to live? So we have to do more in understanding what happens to a veteran after they retire. And that's what our 501c3 does. Uh, well, what's the name of your group, Robert? We'll uh, give it a plug. It's called Veteran Recovery Coalition. Sid and Bernie do a lot of plugs on this. I'm on their show often. Uh, but I was calling in today because this is something we have to focus on. There's a, there's a large group of um, there's a large percentage of suicides in this population, and no one's. Oh yeah, attention. no, 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 a- absolutely. Uh, and uh, one of the groups that uh, that I work with is called the Gold Shield. You can learn more about them at uh, at goldshield.us or thesimpletruth.us and learn more about them. That's a private sector solution to uh, to this problem. But uh, we're talking about this survey, which shows that the number of people in the military, the number of spouses of military servicemen, both active duty and retired, are fewer of them are recommending military life to someone else. So this has the executive director of the Military Family Advisory Network saying that these findings are so alarming that this raises questions about the future of the all-volunteer force. My question for you is two-part. One, if you're in the military, retired or active duty, or a family member of someone who's in the military, would you recommend military life to someone else? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. If the answer is no, why not? What could what recommendations would you make to making it so that people that are in the military would recommend military life to someone else? 800-848-9222. Viviana is in Brooklyn. Hello, Viviana. Hey there. Thank you for taking my call. Um, My husband is a vet, and uh, we live here on Fort Hamilton. Um, I tell you that his um, being a veteran has really enriched our lives. Um, It is a wonderful um, uh, career. However, with the current administration, um, like under Trump, being in the military was fabulous. In the current administration, the wokeness has affected morale, the LGBT issues affecting morale. And for many, many years, uh, my husband was a uh, company commander, and um, I was the one in charge of taking care or or really um, like family support for the spouses. And they have increased the uh, deployments for the families. So it's almost as if the wife uh, has a husband but not a husband, or the husband has a wife but not really the wife because they live geographically separate lives. They need to cut down on the, the employment, I mean, the deployments, and also to increase um, family support in, uh, in and around the, um, the different bases. Mm. Um, the other thing is, too, the fact that we know 
that the administration and others does not take um, the veterans' uh, uh, sacrifice seriously. And I say that they give them a home, just like they give a home to other people. They've served, and if they have not, um, you know, gotten their finances together, they should be able to qualify for a very low um, a mortgage or, like the brother said, you know, give them a housing allowance so that they can get back on their feet. Um, could I make the comment about the election? Sure, real, real is, quick, Viviana, because I want to get a few other quick. folks in here. Yeah. Okay. This is the first time in maybe 12 years we have an opportunity to vote in Lee Zeldin and Esposito. Um, the Democrats have shown us that they're only for themselves. They won't reverse bail reform. They continue to, um, you know, force us uh, to, to um, like, be subservient to them. Hochul had wanted to even um, do a forced internment camp, and thank God a judge said that that was unconstitutional, and that was if she deemed that we were unhealthy for the rest of the population. Um, they have spit in our faces, and they have made living in New York City a nightmare. So it is time to go for voting straight down the line, Republican or conservative. And if there's a good Democrat, please vote for them. But if not, vote them out. We All right. cannot afford Thank you, Viviana. Uncle Bob is in Ohio. Uh, Bob, whose uncle are you exactly? Well, they call me Uncle Bob because I was the oldest man in the fire department. I was a fireman from 1964. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for your service to the fire department. Well, thank you, sir. Anyways, uh, yes, I was in the military. I would recommend it to anyone. And my uh, other statement would be that if the government or if the military falls below a certain level, that they reinstitute the draft. All right. Thank you, Bob. Mike is in Pennsylvania. Hello, Mike. Morning, Frank. That lady said, oh, thank God for that lady's service. Always remember that. When you say thank you to a veteran uh, or, you know, say thank you to his wife, if she served that 20 years, too. Absolutely. Him. No doubt about it. And I had that opportunity just two weeks ago. I'm going off what I was going to say, but I had that opportunity. I met a guy. In the army, had his little girls. I was getting on the Amtrak, and uh, and uh, she was the wife. As soon as he, you know, said what he did, I said to her, "Thank you for your service." And he was so thrilled that I said that to her, and she she couldn't believe that I was saying that to her and not him. But uh, the thing with the, one of the things about the morale and all, we haven't had a president. Forget about Junior, but George W. Bush, the first, was a veteran. All the other presidents that we've had so far are were, were never were never in in the service. Do you know what I'm saying? I do, and you know. Well, that's actually a point that's been raised by Harlan Ullman, uh, who's been a guest on this show. And he wrote a book about why America loses every war nowadays. And that was one of his points. He said that because we don't – and thanks for the call, Mike – because we haven't had a commander-in-chief that uh, has any significant military experience – 
they tend to get involved in a li- in a lot of military misadventures. I'm I'm not doing justice to Harlan Allman's argument, but that's it in a in sort of a nutshell. Hey, uh, whether you're in the military or a civilian, we're going to do our part to give you a thousand dollars if you think you can answer ten trivia questions in sixty seconds. Then be the seventh caller right now to one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. And if you think you have what it takes, be the seventh caller right now. Now, please don't call if you can't name. If you don't know how to spell cat, if you don't know how to spell cat, don't call. If you don't know what continent you're living on, don't call. If you don't know what month St. Patrick's Day is in, don't call. Save us the trouble. Save yourself the embarrassment. Call if you have some basic understanding of trivia. If you have what it takes, be the seventh caller now to 800-848-9222, and then we'll chat with Brian Kilmeade straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. In just a few minutes, or just a minute, we're going to talk with uh, Brian Kilmeade, someone who's clearly insane in the membrane. But uh, we get him early in the day before that membrane insanity seeps into his commentary. Uh, we'll comment, get his take on uh, what's happening in the news today. But first, we want to give one lucky person an opportunity to win some money. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Ah, yes, let's meet today's contestant, Gene in Massapequa. Hello, Gene. Hello. Gene, uh, you're familiar with the game, I take it. Totally, but okay. Go ahead. All right. So it's uh, very simple. The timer's gonna you're gonna have sixty seconds to answer ten trivia questions. They're not difficult. The trick is just not getting flustered and to come up with answers quickly. Uh, the timer will begin after I ask you the first question. And uh, you were, if you get a question right, we're just going to move on to the next question. You get a question wrong, you'll hear a buzzer. And if you're lucky, we'll give you a consolation prize. Okay. Simple enough. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Name a fast food restaurant. McDonald's. How many feet are in a yard? Three. Which Disney character famously left a glass slipper behind at a ball? Cinderella. Who recently announced he would be stepping down as UK Prime Minister? Fourth. What state is Chicago in? Illinois. Who was president during the War of 1812? Uh, Johnson. Jackson. Uh, I am sorry. Both of those are incorrect. It was, you know, the irony there is that you said Johnson when you should have said Johnson 
as your complete answer to Boris Johnson, the UK prime minister. Yes. But no, it was. Yeah, I uh, had it in my head. It's okay. Well, I guess that's why you said it for question six. President during the War of 1812 was James Madison. James Madison. Madison. Uh, that's when his wife, she rescued George Washington's portrait when she wasn't busy inventing ice cream. Gene, hang on. We're going to give you a consolation prize, okay? Give Kenneth your information. Yes, sir. Thanks for playing. All right. A guy that knows all about the War of 1812 is someone that uh, actually wrote a book about Andrew Jackson's incredible victory at the Battle of New Orleans. He's a New York Times bestselling author, co-host of Fox and Friends, a nationally syndicated radio talk show host, and wears a whole bunch of other hats, which now includes doing this live show that he takes all around the country. The one and only Brian Kilmeade. Brian, good morning. It's great to talk with you. Yeah, I'm Frank. I'm realizing now that when I'm in Newark at the end of August, I think the 27th, you even you can't get out of it because you're you're off. <laughs> Normally, it's like, hey, listen, hey, Brian, I got I got a show, but like you can't. It's Saturday. So no, you have to you have to go party. I know you like to. I guess it's. I'll, uh, it's I'll, hey, I'll be there. I'll be there, especially if there's an open bar somewhere on the premises. I will absolutely be there. By the way, if uh, people want to see, not only is Brian going to be performing at uh, NJ Pack in Newark on August 27th, but we do have a lot of listeners upstate. Uh, September 8th, he's going to be performing at the world famous Egg. The Egg in uh, in Albany, and uh, it's gonna, it's a great show. Kilmead Live. If people want tickets, they can go to BrianKilmead dot com. And I've seen Brian do some of these live shows, and it's really great. If you're interested in sports, if you're interested in the human convi- condition and what motivates you, or if you're interested in history, it's a great show uh, to see. Uh, how are sales, by the way? Great. Uh, Albany is. Uh, I mean, I got two dates uh, in Tulsa and Brandon, Mississippi. But that's in November when the paperback comes out. Uh, Newark's moving, and Albany is is two thirds there already. Awesome. So that's September eighth, and and Newark's in on the twenty seventh. That's my only commuter show ever, I think. So I'm able to actually go home and then go there. Usually we got to take a trip because a lot of our audience, you know, around the country. Uh, Fox Country is is the further down south you go, Midwest you go, a West Coast not big in California, most places, uh, but we're getting a growing constituency in New Jersey. Yeah, well, because I, mainly WABC. Oh no, 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 no doubt. We have a lot of listeners out there. I think there's a lot of folks that are going to be eager to come see you on uh, on August 27th. Brian, I got to ask you about this. Uh, you, you are an expert in kind of media commentary and an expert in sports. And this is one of those areas where the two sort of meet. And that has to do with some uh, pretty interesting comments that Mike Tyson made. Uh, now, Mike Tyson always makes a lot of interesting comments, former heavyweight champion of the world. And uh, he went and spoke with um, he was on speaking on a podcast. And this is what he had to say about about his future. Some people want to analyze their success, which is ridiculous. We're all going to die one day, of course. Then when I look in the mirror, I see those little spots on my face, and I say, wow, that's my expiration date. It's coming close really soon. Mike Tyson says his expiration date is coming close really soon. As somebody that always motivates people to think positive and be positive, at 56 years old, it seems like Iron Mike is still in pretty good shape. It seems like a lot of his demons, uh, drug use and other things, too much partying, that's largely in his past. Why do you think he's saying that right now? Uh, I'm not really. For one thing, he's, he's in, invariably honest, always. He says what's on his mind. Uh, number two is he's always said, he goes, I never thought I was going to live a long time. Mickey Mantle said the same thing. Mm. 
He's like, you know, my dad died so young, I never thought I was going to live a long time. Tony Saragusa, sadly, who passed away three uh, about a month ago, he used to say that. He goes, my dad died in his, his sleep in his 40s. You know, I, I don't take a day for granted. And sadly, he passed away at 57. And I think that Tyson looks at that. I mean, the guy stayed at death multiple times. He wasn't afraid to die. Most of it, A lot of his friends from Brownsville mm. are dead from where they're from. I think it's just being honest. I mean, a lot of people think like that, too, in that, you know, uh, I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, everyone's talking about Elvis. Elvis died, right? Oh, yeah, you at the end of his life. And then I'm thinking to myself, well, my whole life, he died, right? I'm like, when he got older, the guy died in his 40s. Right. I mean, we used to think Elvis died, right. like, so old. Right. In his right. 40s. Right. So, I mean, you could think of it, I, I don't think that way, and Tyson might not think that way today. But when he was asked that question then, he sees it. Also, he lost a child. And when you have to deal with death early, whether it's your friend being yeah. gunned down, your mom dying, your dad disappearing, uh, his sister died, and then he loses a child tragically on a, some type of weird treadmill accident. Mm. It does not, you know, sometimes people don't deal with that, they, and they're so lucky, eventually they will. So for him, it's real. I was mentioning James Madison earlier, and um, a couple of days ago we did the story uh, that was featured in the New York Post over the weekend. I, I know that you covered it on Fox and Friends, all about how the the remake or, or the the refurbishment at the James at James Madison's home, which is supposed to be a presidential museum, does very little to do with his presidency. It has very little to do with the Constitution or the Federalist Papers, and it's all about slavery and how terrible slavery was, which of course it was, and how the founding fathers really played a role in that. Well, what's your take on sort of not only what's happening with Madison, but what's happening with Jefferson, and sort of this this desire to rewrite history to paint all of America's heroes as the bad guys? Is this thing called presentism? You know, we look at people, James Madison, a colonist who rode a horse, uh, a five foot three, three inch president who was brilliant, suffering from epilepsy on a regular basis. He would just have to disappear during his presidency and just uh, and just unwind at Montpelier. And then we see this story. Uh, and I talked to John Levine of the New York Post on radio yesterday, yesterday I think it was. Mm. And he said, listen, we sent people out there. This has been confirmed. Monticello, I was there for what made America great on Fox Nation, but I got the personal tour before anything opened up. And I got a great tour. But they are putting him down, Jefferson and Madison, on tour. And you should keep in mind, people listening right now of uh, who are African-American descent, who might date back to slavery, who knows. But if you are, they don't duck slavery there. They shouldn't. And the thing is, you listen, if you just take a second and see how Thomas Jefferson and James Madison wrestled with the legacy of slavery, which they were born into, tried to get out of it, uh, but they couldn't. You know, Jane, John, Mad John Adams was basically the only one, and people say, well, Adams had it easy. He was in the Northeast. He didn't need anybody to work his farm. He didn't have economic issues. No excuse. But they knew the evils of it. Also, when you take the tour, there's the slave there, – right next door is the slave headquarters, how they served – uh, how they served the main house, what exactly they did. There's excavations going on right now to find out how they lived, how they ate, where Sally Hemings lived, and the Hemings family was, where where it said that Jefferson's kids uh, were raised. So it's all there, and there's nothing wrong with that. That That's part of the story. But to walk in and not say he's the author of the Declaration of Independence, not walk in and say he was the third president, first secretary of state, uh, they played such a vital role in, in the uh, the Tripoli Wars, the first time America had an overseas 
uh, overseas enemy. He was the one who led the way to build a navy and actually bring this type of success that Europe could only would have to envy. And we we're only a couple of decades old as a president. This guy would have influence for generations, and he had such pride in even celebrating the 25-year mark of the of the uh, of the founding of the country. We wouldn't be here without him. And if anyone out there is looking for a perfect person in mm. our past, we will be a nation of pedestals. Right, or, or our present. Perfect. Or our present, right? Yeah. yeah. Teddy Roosevelt, out of the Museum of Natural History. How do you explain that? Well, the Indian sitting next to the horse, the American Indian standing next, uh, next, uh, alongside the horse, and the African standing alongside the horse uh, is uh, makes it look as though, and he's on the horse, the President of the United States, uh, that makes it look like the white people are above uh, others. No, no, he's on a horse. What is your problem? The Roosevelt family found the Museum of Natural History. Part of what he did was explore the continent of Africa. And what he also did was go into the Midwest and learn to be a rancher and interact with, uh, with uh, the American Indian, at which time there were American Indian issues done, uh, dealt with all the way through Lincoln. So don't say, well, we would have dealt with the American Indians like that. No, no. Put yourself back in those times. After we initially came to the continent, there were constant clashes and constant collaborations. But there were clashes. So don't just say right now, it's like us saying, what could you, why are we mad at the Japanese? They're so nice to us. They're so loyal. Well, not in the 1940s they weren't. It's uh, it's certainly it's really enough to make you shake your head. Uh, one of the things that a lot of our listeners have been shaking their heads about is this continuing story over uh, Hunter Biden. Now, initially during the presidential campaign, we were told that a lot of the things coming out of this Hunter Biden laptop were either Russian disinformation or a bizarre conspiracy theory or unconfirmed, so they couldn't be shared on social media. Now it's being reported today that officials are weighing possible Hunter Biden charges as this probe into what's on this laptop is reaching a critical stage. Obviously, you're not privy to the evidence, neither am I. But if you were to bet at this point, Brian, do you think we're going to see some sort of criminal charges emanate from what's uh, what's on this laptop? Yeah, I'm just I'm exploring that right now. With their, by the way, 2018, the investigation starts. We're in 2022, and they're wondering, should we come out with a verdict because of the midterm elections? Number one, Joe Biden's not on the ballot. Just uh, do your job. To Biden's credit, he left the he left the uh, the the uh, the judge, district judge in right, place. Term. So yeah, so go okay. That's Mrs. Michael Weiss. Oh, so right. Staying, yeah. So so he he's staying in place uh, to finish off the investigation. So that would have brought an instant uh, condemnation. My fear is the thing that you'd be looking at is uh, is that that Farrer law that prevents you from trading without permission from our government, especially on your dad's name, that Paul Manafort spent time in solitary confinement for, which they had no problem with until he came back and started working for Trump. And then they investigated things that they dropped, and they investigated and put him in solitary. While he's being investigated, they charge him, and uh, as everybody knows, he gets exonerated. My fear is, because there's no justice in it, they're going to go, well, you know, he got a gun on the false premises, and um, he did, did a bad job in taxes, but he was on crack. Uh, and there's no tie to his dad. A thorough investigation by the FBI would say, okay, what were you doing? What was your dad's role in that as sure. vice president? And then, and then, how big is this? But I think they're going to look at a drug-addled guy. They're actually going to make him a sympathetic figure. And Jim Trusty, a former uh, a former district attorney, came out yesterday, who was with the Bush administration, and says, I think they're about to. 
uh, to soft pedal this whole thing. You alluded to that uh, they're they're leaving the U.S. Attorney for Delaware, David Weiss, in position to do this investigation. This has been one of those areas where some people said because this is the president's son, maybe this is exactly the kind of investigation that calls for an independent special prosecutor like Uh what we saw with the Mueller probe and like we had with Durham and the Russia investigation. Do you think that's necessary here? Do you think the Justice Department can handle this as is? There's no way after they see what happened with the Mueller probe, uh, with – uh, you know, what happened uh, in the past with the Clinton investigation, they're going to have a special prosecutor. There's no way they're going to do it. That means the president of the United States got a call for it. There's no way with the member the Carl Rove investigation that eventually it was Richard Armitage who talked mm-hmm. about those words and uh, uh, those words in the State of the Union address. Uh, they remember it was um, it was Scooter Libby that ended up getting convicted and that ended up taking life its own almost overwhelming uh, the Bush presidency and destroying the lives of everybody investigated, just like uh, the Mueller probe did. And of course, they concluded almost nothing. If you read the Mueller probe, there's a bunch of tangential things, and these FBI guys are the ones that should have been to jail. Instead, they end up with MSNBC and CNN contributorships. But there's no way. What's going to happen is they're going to put this out. It's going to be a Friday night. They're going to say Hunter Biden's going to maybe have to pay a fine, go on probation, or spend a weekend in jail. And he's going to say, look, I I was uh, on drugs. I love hookers. There's a lot of video, uh, but that's it, and I paid the price for society. Look to turn the page. But the House is not going to do it, Frank. The House is definitely going to investigate. And not that, you know, people listening right now know might be dealing with substance abuse. I am not worried about the substance abuse. The guy is obviously got huge problems before beyond what we know, and he taped all of it and then then put it out there. It's now for the world to see and for the family to be embarrassed about. Having said that, don't get distracted. The issue is how his father allowed him to be the point man on these high-stakes international deals, knowing that if you're a drug addict or have addiction issues, the worst thing you could do is put people into high-stress situations. And the worst thing you could do is trade on your dad's name because in the end, that is your legacy. Nixon's legacy is still suffering under Watergate. Biden's out there not only letting his son run point on Romanian deals, Ukrainian deals, China deals, Russian oligarch, uh, Colombia, running all this on the Biden name, setting up meetings that are easily trackable, which was put up in the New York Post. But he's doing it in a way in which he's saying no one will ever catch me because the media's got my back. Mm. So that is a legitimate investigation would look into that. And it's not going to be a dry hole. I think it. I think it's huge. Yeah, unfortunately, one of the things that we've seen that's bipartisan is the sons of politician, uh, the sons of various politicians uh, trading in on their on their fathers' names. I know uh, uh, Peter Schweitzer has uh, covered that extensively oh, yeah. about how relatives of uh, Obama, Biden, Kerry, Mitch McConnell, even Donald Trump, have uh, used their familial connections to uh, to benefit themselves and clients in the process. Speaking of Donald. Trump, Trump, the House January 6th Commission committee is holding its final hearing of the summer, and apparently they're going to focus on the 187 minutes that President Trump failed to act on January 6th in spite of pleas for help from his aides. Now, irrespective of the legal consequences, irrespective of the political consequences, you've become a pretty accomplished historian in your own right. 
How do you think um, history is going to view President Trump's conduct on January 6th? Terrible. Uh, and, and if anyone, you know, even, you know, Jim Jordan, Jim Jordan's been asked things, you know, how big a deal is this? I mean, his greatest defender, you really can't defend the president's actions. You can't defend uh, his scheduling for that march. You can't defend a guy I like personally, but Steve Bannon's influence at that moment, with Rudy Giuliani's influence at that moment, with all these people around him, he decided to listen to the most extreme people in his circle instead of the people that brought him through the Mueller probe, that have this great connection and loyalty to him, he goes, well, you guys don't want me to do this, so I'm just going to go find other people that do, Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon and others that advise him. I think it's indefensible. But what they're doing, and if you guys don't, I know many of you, Frank, your listeners don't do this, but flip to CNN. This is all MSNBC and CNN have. They're overdoing it. They're just they're acting as if there is no oil crisis. There is no president of the United States claiming falsely uh, that he's got cancer yesterday. That he's going to start using the executive orders that's going to further destroy our economy. That's further going to torture the American family. They have overplayed their hand on January 6th. But nobody defends the president's decisions and conduct after. If he just acted somewhat traditional, his approval rating would be 70 percent right now. They wouldn't even be bringing up Ron DeSantis or Glenn Youngkin as possibly people going for the nomination. They'd be talking more about Grover Cleveland than they would be mm. about uh, Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo and Mike Pence. Mike Pence wouldn't be thinking about running right now if the president didn't back, uh, at least in words, the hanging of Mike Pence and call him a traitor and weak and things I can't say on the air. I mean, if they just had, if it was anything traditional. But that that doesn't mean that January 6th deserved the one-sided play uh, now in prime time again as a blatant way to try to limit the losses they have. This is about the midterm election and making sure Donald Trump doesn't run again. That's what it's about. But Brian, no one's defending the president's actions. Uh, one of the most important questions, uh, July 30th, the WABC on-air talent has this big game before the Ferry Hawks against the NYPD softball uh, game, uh, softball team. Are you playing, and if so, what position? Uh, no, I won't be playing, but I'm going to go to the golf out in the next day, even though I got Laura Ingram at night. And I'm doing outnumbered. Uh, but uh, the first time I'm hearing of it is now. But at that weekend, I'm not around. All right. But, okay. the, the, but that Monday, uh, on August 1st, the golf outing in Garden City, will you be going to that? I am not. I think for the benefit of everybody that's on the on whatever foursome I'd be on, I actually would uh, I actually would be in the quadruple digits in terms of my golf score. I uh, golf golf is a a skill that I never in, never inherited from my my father, who's a pretty accomplished golfer. Uh, what's coming up on radio and television today, Brian? Uh, well, I mean, uh, our guests include Ben Carson of Senator Blackburn, do a simulcast with Harris Faulkner on Fox News Channel and Gerard Breaker, the Wall Street Journal economist and editor. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be talking about, number one, Mallorca said it again, the border's closed. And there's huge blowback on that statement. It's probably Biden's greatest intentional failure. I'll talk a little bit about the Hunter investigation, but more, more importantly, this fake climate crisis that we're in, there's a responsible way to do it, and there's a way we're doing it. And we are continuing to leave ourselves vulnerable with the president plans on doing what he announced yesterday and indicated he's looking to do, uh, looking to announce. Also, his gaffes, uh, he had three within about three minutes. 
How many, much longer are we going to be doing this? And also, I don't know if you guys have been going over the Maris poll right in upstate New York. His approval rating, at, it was at about 30% with Quinnipiac, also among our listenership, and 36%. 36% approval rating with a totally compliant press who overlook every mistake he makes. The American people are looking past it. The approval of his presidency among Democrats has dropped nine points. For independence, it's at 28%. On Hispanics, an epic drop. So when anyone says, you know, how bad a loss will they suffer at the midterms, Democrats? That Hispanic independent numbers is going to be key. So I'll talk about that. And people who judge, take it a bow because gas dropped 40 cents. Really? Per barrel, it's bound up to $108. <laughs> that means the ripple effect is going to bring us right back to $5. And this transportation secretary, who should be embarrassed to leave the house when you look at the supply chain problem, our inability to get baby formula, and the price of transportation, he's saying what a great job we're doing. Brian, uh, we'll be, it's going to sound like an action-packed show on television and radio. We'll also be checking you out this weekend on the Fox News Channel. I will see you soon, and people should definitely get their tickets for the uh, Kilmeade Live Tour at briankilmead.com. Thank you. Go get it, Frank. Thank we'll, you. We'll do it next week. Brian Kilmeade. 800-848-9222. If you want to be heard for 15 seconds, now's the time. 1-800-848-9222. 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Thanks to Stevie G and the Starlighters, uh, The Other Side of Midnight, a song that is just tearing up the charts on iTunes and everywhere else. All right. Time now for you to be heard for 15 seconds. By the way, tomorrow we'll be back at... um, uh, with a fresh, brand spanking new edition of Ask Frank Anything. Start working on your questions now. We will give away some prizes for whoever comes up with the best question and the most creative question tomorrow. So don't miss that uh, on our on our Friday edition of The Other Side of Midnight. But first, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Dave is in the Bronx. One of the people begging Donald Trump to take action on January 6th was Brian Kilmeade, of all people. How shocking. Eddie in Ocean County. Hi, I, I really enjoyed when you had Brian Kilmeade on. I think his views are so good, especially his thing with January 6th. Very good. I just want to ask you, Frank, when's Kirsten Gillibrand up for re-election? She is up in 2024. Joe in Orange County. Brian, what's up? Brian Kilmeade's excellent. You know, we need more people like him that speak the truth 
and uh, great show. Thank you. Mike on Staten Island. Hey, Frank, good morning. I want out all our military and their families. And I also want to thank Chris from Dino and Son for his incredible lunch specials. Victor in Manhattan. Uh, one reporter asked why she cut nose and mouth holes in her COVID mask. Ocasio-Cortez replied, very simply, all the better to breathe with. Mike in the Poconos. Hey, Frank, always a good show. You know, when Biden was on, here's the thing. Uh, uh, Joe Biden and Hunter, two scam artists, shakedown artists. And Hunter it was an opioid drug addict, and I hope he gets, uh, you know, uh, the scales of justice against him. Harry in New Jersey. Read the Janine Machine by Richard Blasberg and Twisted Justice of CNN.com. Janine Machine by Richard Blasberg and Twisted Justice of CNN.com. And finally, Steve and Merrick. Sizzle moron, sizzle moron, sizzle moron. I'm so glad we were able to get Steve in. All right, that about slams the lid on things for today. I'll be back tomorrow morning. You want to stay in touch, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com or on Twitter at Frank Morano. Frank Morano, good day. I love my Italian heritage and the food that goes along with it. That's why on Sundays after church, I head over with my father to Italo's Fine Foods on Forest Avenue in Staten Island with our list from mom. They have two locations on Forest Avenue, 1566 and the new one at 725. It's family-owned and serving Italian specialties since 2014. They also have a full catering menu, the freshest meats, imported San Martano tomatoes from Italy, and the best mozzarella. Order in-store, by phone, or online. They even deliver. ItaloFineFoods.com, I-T-A-L-O, FineFoods.com. Tell them Vinny Madugno and WABC sent you. Manja.